Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, and welcome to Juance, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. I'm Dan Pfefferman. Welcome to another great episode of the show. Uh, before we get going, I'd like to give a shout out to our audience watching us today on Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. For those of you listening later in the week on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms, know that there is a live video version of the podcast, which you can check out weekly. It's available on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Podcast. Or you can check it out uh, on our YouTube channel, Juwan's Podcast, as well as on our website, www.youguessedjuwan's.com. Also, make sure you're following us on Instagram. We're at Juwan's Podcast on Twitter. Where we're also at Juwan's Podcast. And as always, make sure to subscribe to Juwan's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, all those other ones that I don't know Google about. Google Plus, Pony Express. Really? There's one called Pony Express? No, it was a Wherever joke. you get your podcasts, and please leave us a five-star review. We think it makes a difference. We hope it makes a difference. And you can join people in 117 countries who are now Juwanced fans. You made that up. I did not. Which, which was the latest country that joined this? There's like four countries in sub-Saharan Africa. I apologize to those listeners. We have uh, That's amazing. So our, our, our guest today, Dr. Guy Matalon, which <laughs> with, who Dan will introduce shortly, <laughs> will, does not uh, may not expect this, but we have a following of a lot of people in very random places where you would not necessarily assume that there would be people watching a Jewish themed uh, podcast. Dan, you want to uh, elaborate? Where do we have Where do we have listeners? Uh, we we have r- listeners joining us recently from Togo. Wow, Benin. Um, Afghanistan. Well, lots of listeners in Afghanistan, Pakistan, surprisingly, Iran, all over the Middle East. Um, Libya. We have someone joining us from Libya. Hello, Libyan. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs> um, really, all over the world. It's crazy. 117 countries. So if you are one of those listeners listening from a country that we wouldn't expect it, give us a shout out, say hi, and we would love to give you a shout out back on our next show. How you doing, man? Oh. I'm doing all right. How are you doing? How are you doing, guy? Amazing, amazing. Another wonderful Monday. We're so glad to have you with us. Yes, Monday is a, is a margarita madness. Margarita. <laughs> <laughs> is that what happens in the Madeline household? Yes, that's why it's all with M's. Madeline's margarita madness Monday. Um, life has kind of gotten back to normal as most people are vaccinated or healing from uh, COVID, and um, so it's nice. We can walk around without masks and um, sit at restaurant. I sat at a restaurant today. Was it weird? No, it was nice. It was really nice to sit at a restaurant. And you paid for the privilege of bad service? Had excellent service. 
Want to give a shout out to the restaurant? I forget its name, but it's a nice little place. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was excellent. I didn't know. I don't know what it's called. Somebody <laughs> invited me there. A nice little place in Ranana. Had a little business meeting. And uh, at the table next to us, they were filming some kind of book promo for, for television. Some famous author or another was sitting there pretending to read his book. Have you ever um, been filmed for the B-roll of, of like a news? Uh, no. It's, it's very awkward to do it. Uh-huh. Because you have to look like I've done it before. They're like, okay, now walk towards me. And then all of a sudden, it's like you have to walk and pretend like you're walking naturally while not looking at the camera, but also, you know, looking, look at the camera. looking sure at the that camera. That's right. Or, you know, sit there, read a copy of your book, but make it look natural. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, before we introduce our guest, before we jump into our show, quick As shout out. A quick shout out. As you all know, Juwas is a listener-supported podcast. We rely on the generous support of listeners such as yourself to make sure that we continue to bring great content and great guests to the airwaves of Juwas. Also mediocre guests sometimes, but that's okay. I not would, this week. Not this, not week. this no, week. No, no, no. Of course, and, sometimes, and, and, and I would say that's that, another M. This week we have magnificent. <laughs> that's right. So listen and check it out. We make it very, very simple for you to do this. Uh, you can make a one-time donation on our PayPal account. You can make an ongoing contribution, which we prefer, on our Patreon account. It's very simple to do that. Go to our website, www.juance.com, for more information and help us make it happen. That's true. And if you do, and if you commit at least $1 an episode, that's all we're asking, at least $1 an episode, you can even do two or five, depending on how generous you are, we will give you a shout-out on the show, and you can even submit questions, any questions you have about us, about the Jewish world, about Israel, about the Middle East, about aliens, whatever you want, and we will do our very best to answer them and give you a shout-out. You can even submit it with an audio file and get your voice played for people in 117 countries around the world. So please consider making a ongoing contribution to the show to help keep this party going. So I have to say, before before we get going, I was thinking about it on the way over here. This is, uh, Guy, you, you are a 42nd episode. Wow. Uh, which which doesn't sound, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, there's a lot of podcasts out there that have been going on for, you know, years and years, I think. You know, I listen to podcasts that are like at episode fifteen hundred or sixteen hundred, but it's it's no small deal to get these sort of things going off the ground. There's there's costs that go into equipment. There's costs that go into content to, uh, writing and and development, uh, and and above and all, else, and the speakers' cost. I mean, the speakers. The speakers. Are gonna, yeah, we didn't talk about. Oh, we didn't talk about that. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's, it's quite a commitment. Dan can say. I mean, we get together every week, uh, and it's great to come here and 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 this show particularly. Uh, it is started out, uh, you know, as a COVID project during a time when when things were a little bit tougher for 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 many of us, uh, especially, uh, you know, personally speaking for myself, coming from the tourism world. Uh, but uh, but it has it has sustained me and many people in many ways, and it has brought us out to this point, and we're and we're still going strong. And I appreciate all of you uh, for listening and supporting us, uh, and. Um, I'll just say that uh, 42 weeks is, is, is pretty consistent work. That's uh, in, in another in another 10 episodes, we'll be at this for a year. That's right. And uh, lots of good stuff in the works. We're going to keep this going. So without, without further ado, Dan, why don't you introduce our guest for today? Gladly. So we have here the, the magnificent. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Dr. Guy Madalone. Listen, my wife's not listening. So oh, she's not? You, you can just tell okay, her. Okay, we have the mediocre. That's right. That's right. Dr. Guy Madalone, director of the Mechina program at Orsameach. You'll have to explain what that is shortly for some of our non Jewish guests. And some of our Jewish guests. And some of our Jewish guests. Probably our Jewish guests. Guy grew up in an Israeli family, a secular Israeli family. And if you're watching, 
you'll understand immediately why I said that. And if you're listening, you'll understand shortly why I said that. In uh, To an Israeli family in the United States, received a BA in political science at California, went on to get his MA and PhD in Judaic studies and medieval Jewish and Islamic philosophy from NYU, from New York University, and then moved to Omaha, Nebraska, where we met. That's right. Where we met a few years ago. Um, Almost 10 years ago. And became a professor of Judaic studies at the Department of Philosophy and Religion at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, and executive director of the Center for Jewish Education of Omaha, and the founding director of the Schwalb Center for Israel and Jewish Studies at UNO. By the way, shout out to all of our mutual Omaha and Nebraska friends and family, I have to say. Uh, For those of you who did not know, my wife is from Omaha, Nebraska, and hopefully uh, her parents, Sherry and Jeff, are listening. How you guys doing? So, through his study of Jewish philosophy, like <clears throat> Rambam and other Rishonim, which we'll get into in the original Hebrew and Arabic, that is impressive, sir, and acquired a skill to learn Gemara, to learn Talmud, he delved deeper into the sources and through self-education became proficient in the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmud and other various foundational texts of Judaism, and he came back to Israel in 2012 with his lovely wife and two sets of twins. Benny, you thought he, you had it hard. He has two sets of twins. That's hardcore, Ben. I always say like this, I'm very fertile. That's why I don't shake women's hands. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. <laughs> it's a podcast. I'm kind, of afraid, I'm kind of afraid that I shake your hand. <laughs> Careful. Wash your hands before you go Nine your months, we'll see. <laughs> Got some of that COVID hand sanitizer. What's going on? That's not COVID, my friend. We're, st- we're sticking in fist bump land. <laughs> yeah. Guy uh, learned in the kolel of Or Samech under the tutelage of Rav Avraham Rizman. Allah shalom. No, no. Oh, Rav Rizman said, lives across the street I from me. You said, yeah, you yeah. said your you, Rav... Uh, you killed him. No, no. I thought you said something about your Rav. That's why I thought I said that. Okay. No. So may he live to a long and healthy life. Oh, man. That's a good Rav Avraham Rizman, may he live to a long and healthy life. And he now teaches... You still in Or Sameh. No, and you teach at Or Sameh. And I teach at Or Sameh. And you teach at Or Sameh, where you also presided over the teaching of one Amari Stoudemire, according uh, to press reports. And according to Amari Stoudemire. And according to Amari Stoudemire. <laughs> yes. So, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Um, it's So far, it's a lot of fun. Uh, thank <laughs> it's God. It's all downhill from here. Good. All right. Listen, I'm just waiting for my margarita. All downhill from here. I will say to all of our guests who are listening live on Facebook... You are welcome to leave comments. You are welcome to leave questions, and we will do our best to get to them during the show. No promises. What are you up to these days? Well, I'll tell you. Before uh, the festival of, Pur- of right after Purim, was I finished two thousand seven hundred eleven pages of the Babylonian Talmud. Wow! Can you can you explain to so, to 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 me to our listeners that may not be as familiar with that as others? What does that entail? Because it's not just reading 2,711 pages of a book. It's not like you, you know, we you went know to a library on you the You know, on first the wall. of all, what is the Talmud for oh. some of our listeners? Well, so we have to, I'm not going to get academic. You should. I don't want to bore people. Okay. This is what I do when I speak. I bore people. Um, I'll tell you this, that the Torah, which is the basic holy text of Judaism, um, a is accompanied with an oral tradition. And that old tradition goes back all the way to the time of Moses when the Jewish people received the Torah on Har Sinai, on Mount Sinai. And those traditions were written down uh, over the ages. 
And they're collected in three major collections. One of them is called Mishnah, another one is called Midrash, and the largest collection is called Talmud. And so it's essentially the uh, source of everything Jewish. If you want to be really Jewanced, that's where you got to go. Because everything that you want to know about Judaism, whether it's how we understand the verses in the Bible, how do we relate to the non-Jewish world, how do we apply Jewish law to various situations, everything is in the, in the Talmud or called Gemara. Gemara and Talmud are just the same words in two different languages. Talmud is in Hebrew, Gemara, which means study, is in Aramaic. So there are two Talmuds that we have. Uh, in, academia, in the academic world, one of them used to call the Palestinian Talmud, which obviously not, because it's not Palestinian. It's really, we call it the Jerusalem Talmud. Um, and that is one collection. And then there is the larger collection that was written in Babylonia, uh, which is called the Babylonian Talmud. So I took it upon myself to finish the Babylonian Talmud. The whole thing. The whole thing. 2,711 pages. Now, that's a lot. I'm going to tell you, <laughs> most of it was done without the sponsorship, but with the help of Egid. The, the bus company. The bus company. In <laughs> Israel, there's a bus company. The major bus company is called Egid. And I get on the bus in the morning, going from Rehova to Jerusalem, and I would start learning. You know, I'm happy to give you a ride. I know. People okay. offer, Rev Reisman, who lives across the street, said, I'll give you a ride. And I said, but I'm not going to be able to learn. I'm going to have to talk, talk and be to nice. I, I completely and totally understand where you're coming from. Uh, for years, people have, I take the train to, or I did take the train to work when we had an office and there yeah. was work. And I I was always offered rides. And it was like, no, that's that's my time. That's right. Like in the busy world of work and life and family and this and that, like that's your, that's the only time you have. So I had about, it took me about three and a half years to finish, and we had uh, the shiva had a big, big, it's bash, a big, deal. A big, yeah, it's a really big deal. It's a big deal to finish. And so then they said, "Well, what are you doing now?" So I said, "Well, now I'm working on the Jerusalem Talmud. <laughs> now I got to take the trade, so I can so, make a different." No, book. no, no, no. <laughs> okay, but all joking aside, it's 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 obviously a huge, a huge feat. Why are there two? And and how is the Jerusalem one going to be different from? Are you? Are, it's, you're not essentially reading the same book again. Not at with, all. You know, with a different twist. It, it's, no, it's. The Babylonian Talmud is based on the uh, rabbinical academies that existed in the Babylonian, or where today is Iraq, that world. And those institutions had a different way of learning. And those texts are older, for in about 100 years older than the Jerusalem Talmud. And the Jerusalem Talmud are based on the rabbinic uh, academies that existed in the land of Israel. And the discussions that they had with regard to laws that are applicable to the land of Israel. So there are a lot more sections dealing with agricultural laws in the Jerusalem than they're in Babylonian, because in Babylonian they said, this is not Eretz Israel, it's not the land of Israel. So we don't have to worry about the uh, sabbatical year, we don't have to l- worry about Truma and Miser, all these other things that tithes and other biblical commandments, they just don't apply outside the land of Israel. Is one longer than the other? Babylonian is much longer than the other. Even though they're dealing with less stuff? They, well, they, they were dealing with more stuff in Babylonia um, just because the way that they learned was different. Is one more philosophical than the other? 
Oh, so that's a very good question. So the Ariya Kadosh, who is essentially the, the main source for Jewish mysticism since the 16th century, he says really the Jerusalem Talmud is on a higher level spiritually than the Babylonian. Because it was written here. Not only because it's written here, because it's written in a very short, short and terse manner. The Babylonian is more explained. It's more, uh, in more details is given. So it's much easier, still very hard, but it's easier than the Jerusalem Talmud. And the main difference is the language is different because the Jerusalem Talmud is using Aramaic of Eretz Yisrael and the Babylonian Talmud uses Aramaic of the Aram- Those of living in Babylon. In Babylon. They're also written a couple hundred years apart. Correct. Yeah. And, Correct. And I understand that when you're reading a page of Talmud, it's not like reading a page off of a book. There, there are different sections. There are different well, there are no vowels. commentaries. And there's even different handwriting styles. Well, no, we're dealing with printed texts. Printed so, texts, excuse so, me. Yeah, but, but different, I mean, there's you're talking Rashi. about Rashi scripts? Rashi script is so in that, so. But if you look at a Gemara page, right, if you look at m- most Jewish books that, is, that are in Hebrew, the text that people study is the island in the middle. And around it, it's surrounded by commentaries. So the Talmud doesn't have any vowels. It doesn't have any sentence marking. So you, don't, you have to know yeah. where a sentence ends and where a sentence begins. And that's part of the challenge. So you have to figure out where does the idea stop. Ooh. And you also have to figure out what, not only what does it say, what is it doing here? Is there a reason for that? Yes, because the whole point of the oral Torah is that you cannot figure it out by yourself. You have to have a long-bearded one, or what we call a rebbe, a rabbi, to explain to you what it is. And once you learn how to learn through a rabbi, through the, the tradition, and you pick up those tools, then you can start learning on your own. So that's essentially... did you learn on your own, though? Yeah, I was going to say this isn't this is. You didn't have a long beard at the time. Oh, riding so, on the, riding on Egged every day for three years wasn't your first time at the rodeo. No, it wasn't. So here's it's a very interesting story. It's a, I told a story at the Sium. So we moved to Omaha in 1999, my wife and I, and I got a job, one year position at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, and then I was standing one day at the JCC Library, which were, were by you, the way, were you religious at this point? No. So you no, were you were still. No, I wasn't still. I was. A secular you were, you were a secular, regular Jewish former Israeli living in, in pretty America. much, and I was a you know and I had you, a PhD in philosophy. Yeah, I didn't even think about anything about religion. I was very critical of their approach. What are you doing in Omaha? Oh, I got a job in Nebraska in the university. It's a very nice place. <laughs> I was there for your wedding. That's true. You we were got wh- married in Omaha. Wow. You were a white tuxedo. Rabbi Gross. I don't know if rabbi, you ever got. Did of you course, get to meet of course. Rabbi Gross? Of course, Rabbi Gross is an amazing rabbi. So we should get him on the show also. <laughs> he's a lawyer, Gross now. I know. Yeah, yeah. He's still he's, a rabbi. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, so I was standing at the JCC. They they had. I don't know what what's the status is now, but they had a research quality library in this little Jewish community. They still do. It's a very, very good. I don't know if they kept up with mm-hmm. the academic library. I, I, I don't know. But then it was research quality. And this guy drives up, drives up with a station wagon. I don't know if anybody, any young people don't know what a station wagon is. But he pulls up with a station and brings I, I, I don't three. I do know how many young listeners we have anyway. So okay, it's well, it's now to get them on. Because they might find out that there's something called station wagon. And this guy comes into the JCC bringing three boxes. <laughs> 
Two boxes, he says, I'm donating to the library. A third one, he says, could you toss that out for me? The librarian goes for the donation books, and I go to the one that he wants to throw away. I open the box, and I pull out one volume of a Talmud. That he wanted to throw out. That he wanted to throw out. He didn't know what it was. He didn't know what it was. I take another one out, and another one, and another one. And I said, wow, it's not going to be a complete set. What a shame. And it turned out to be perfect mint condition set of Babylonian oh Talmud in Omaha, Nebraska. Why do you want to throw it out? Why do you want to throw it out? He didn't know what it was. But donate it. Ask he didn't know. He didn't know what it was. So he just said, here, just get rid of this. What, if I might ask, what were, what were the books that he didn't want to throw out? Art scroll? What was it? The other books were just English reading books. So either they would be used for the book sale, because they used to have a really great book sale, or they would go into the collection, That's or nuts. do whatever it is. That's nuts. Do you but so I took this Gemara. How did he get it? Did he did, like? Did he, didn't he know who this guy was. He left. He you left. don't know. You don't know the story. No. It's mamish. And amazingly, it's the Kaddish Baruch Hu God sent me a Babylonian Talmud. So I said, okay, <laughs> in a box, in a box. ready to so go. I said, I got to figure this out. So I open it. You're, you're completely secular at this point. Yeah, but my Hebrew was very good because you're originally Israeli and you're, and you're I, a Talmud scholar. And and or my Aramaic was good. Because I studied UCLA languages, so I studied Arabic and Aramaic and Greek. Mm. So I, my Aramaic was good. So I'm opening this text, and it doesn't make any sense to me. I can't figure this out. But you can read it. Yeah, I can read it. Sure. I could figure out what Rashi says, but I don't understand what their argument is. Right. So then I look online, <laughs> and I find a shear, a, a lesson in the Talmud on a section of the Gemara, which is called B'chorot, which is a very, very difficult section, which is nobody ever starts with that section. It's about the laws of firstborn animals when you bring them to the temple for a sacrifice. This is it's got everything wrong Dude, with it for me. So essentially what this, what this guy did in the station wagon is he, he kicked you into the deepest... Most intense rabbit hole. Yeah, right? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> he could have. That has essentially brought you to sitting here right now. Pretty much. So then I decided we actually, I found a Chavrusa in Omaha, Gary Shaikin, who was That's like neighbor. a study partner. Yeah. So we started studying together. We did two mas one Masechet together called Kiddushin. So we did the, 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 the Babylonian. Talmud is split up into sections Correct. called Masechtot. Right. So we did one section called Kiddushin, which is of how do you get married? Okay, and then when we finished the Babylonian, I said, okay, I'm going to do the Jerusalem one because by now I bought one. The whole set. The whole set of the Jerusalem. Yeah, if people don't know, I mean, how many individual books are on your shelf in order to have a full set of the Talmud? So it depends the size, but it's usually you're talking about 25, right. 27. And these are big, usually leather bound. These are yeah. very nice books. They're tall. If you, people can see my hands, they're like yeah. yay big, right? Um, I mean, there's one. If you know, when people ask me, "Do you lift weights?" I said, "No, I just pick up I, I a Baba Vasra." Yeah, I carry yeah, my, my Gemara. Gemara. <laughs> well, I want to take a step back for a second because this is actually interesting. <laughs> this guy drops off the so. books. You know, they were printed somewhere. It's it's we live in modern times, but yeah. back in the art, day, art we're talking art scroll. No, it's not art scroll. Actually, it's an it is an American printing, but it's not art scroll. But like, I have it. I mean, I can when next time if I get it next time, I can show you what a real live. Omaha, Nebraska, Gemara looks like. All right. Wait, 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 but, but, but for real, like, yeah. back in the day, there was no, there was no, I mean, we'll go, we'll go back before even printing presses, the middle okay? Ages. The middle in ages. the Middle Ages, this would have been handwritten. Correct. On some sort of parchment 
you know, uh, paper wasn't a thing, yeah. processed paper, so it would have been an animal skin. And no, no, they had paper back then. How how many, I mean, I assume it wasn't very accessible for everybody to have their own Talmud set. No. no. So in, in, in like an average Jewish community, Commun- how many people would have access to this sort of information? So they would have in yeshivot, in the in rabbinic academies that they had, in the, we're talking about the Middle Ages now. Yeah. So they would have um, Talmuds in yeshivot and they would have few sets. Now they were wealthy Jews that had, very, very good libraries, and that they would spend a lot of money paying scribes to copy various books. So, and there are libraries today that you can go see those manuscripts of ancient Talmuds, you know, very old manuscripts. They're still around, handwritten, handwritten by scribes. And we have the rabbis in the Middle Ages tell us that they're checking versions. So they would have a, they would read and they would say, something's not right here. They would check other manuscripts to verify of what's going on, which is a very, very interesting idea. So they would have, but, you know, there were times where, unfortunately, the Catholic Church would force the Jews to burn the Talmud. And that would have been, that was a big, big disaster. It was a huge loss um, for Jewish communities because, and they would, we know from the reports, they brought uh, wagon loads of Gemaras, of Talmuds, and burnt them. They all in the middle of the town. Because because the entire, the entire, because they uh, felt continuity of the study was determined on the scribe copying. Correct. correct. Uh, nobody had this committed to memory. It was. It's well, there are people who are committed. Yeah, but it's very hard. There are some people that do have sections of it memorized. Uh, not me. Don't ask me. I, my mind doesn't work. Memorized. We're back to M. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's not me. I'm more mesmerized by yeah. this stuff. <laughs> we're staying. We're sticking with an so, M. So if the Catholic Church could could remove the copies from a community, they would remove the the ability of the community to to duplicate and, and to, copy the to information. Learn, to pass but then they would. But but there was, but they were sets. People hid them and they could rewrite and copy them. But it was. It and, was the Jew, much and the more Jewish difficult. world is large and, and geographically the, dispersed. Correct. And there were expulsions and there were other. So, but thank God. I mean, we have we have sets today. But Jewish books are available. They're very easy. Uh, to get, we have lots and lots of. Can we, um, can we pull up a picture of what a, a page of Gemara looks like for for those who are watching? That's yeah, not how Facebook. This is, this is not Zoom. I can't. Uh, Jeffrey if, Jeffrey Wolf is Rabbi Jeffrey Wolf is joining us, and he said twenty four cartloads of manuscripts in Paris twelve forty two. I'm saying yeah, that yeah. means we're burnt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, hi, Shout Rabbi. Shout out to to hi, Rabbi, Rabbi Doctor Jeffrey Wolf. Here, I'm gonna. I wanna for those who are. I will put up a a, uh, a picture of a Talmud, a set of Talmud in the show notes, as well as a page of Talmud in in the show notes as well for people to see. Um, Here, can you can you hold this up to the to the camera? I apologize for people that are watching. If this was done on Zoom, we would be able to share our screen in Facebook. That's not so simple. You have to get right in front of the camera there. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Hide the messages there at the top. There, there you go. So you can see the main text is in the middle. Okay, and it's it's taken from a bit of Mishnah and then the discussion of Mishnah. Correct. Yeah. Okay, and then around it are the various layers and layers of commentary that, you know, we'll, we'll put a page up on the show notes just so people can get an understanding of what what that means. But it's an amazing, amazing piece of work. The, but the, uh, the way the it's Talmud. laid out now, yeah. when did that start happening? When did that layout when become? When there's a printing. A printing when, press. When the first printing, I don't remember when the first, but Gutenberg, people can Wikipedia, right? Wikipedia, when the first Talmud, 
was printed. And once there was printed, I, I it was a feeling printing. Rabbi Jeffrey Wolf will tell us momentarily. Great. I'm just leaving. I'm not touching so, my phone. So, yeah. so in, to, to but that's just asking me what did I do now. Yeah, there are other things that we. I'm just. But to, yeah, yeah. but to like this to, to to sum up the importance of this book, yeah. it's if the Torah is the foundational text of the story of the creation of the world and the Jewish people and everything that exists, the Talmud is how to be a Jew. It's much more than that. It tells you what is first the meaning of the Torah, because without it, we wouldn't know. And so it tells us how to apply the words of God to our daily life. And it tells us, it also tells us the development of Jewish law, which is very, very important for the continuity of Jewish existence. Because every system has to have a way of maintaining its essence as reality changes and reality changes. How did it go down before the Talmud existed? It's oral it was law, oral. So who, it was oral. Who was guarding well, you had, you had that the Mish, You had the Mishnah before the Talmud. Yeah, but but you have to understand that the oral law always existed. Because if you think about this, okay, so Moses comes down from Har Sinai, from Mount Sinai, with the Torah. So the Jewish people say, okay, so what does it say? So he says, it says you have to do you have to put on totafot. What, what does so that mean? <laughs> I so then all the people are looking at each other. What is that? So what do you think would happen? Moses would say, I don't know. Beats me. That's what God said. I don't know. <laughs> you're going to have say, to wait on, a couple get... thousand years. And... No, he's like, that hold, doesn't hold make on. Any... I'll get back to you. <laughs> it, it means that he had the understanding of every single letter and every single word. Why does it say? And that's what he taught. And the people maintained those traditions. The Gemara, the way that it explains Jewish law, is it's asking, how do we know this? It's not coming to tell us what the law is. It's Because we already know that. It's axiomatic in We're, that sense. It's not coming to say, oh, you really, you need to eat these crackers, right, matzahs, in the spring. We know that we eat. So we ask, why do we? And in what sense do we not? And what are the issues? And what are but the it's, rules? It's what are correct. the technicalities surrounding So I'll be, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be rational, practical for a second, because yeah. it would be a miss not to. Before the existence of the Talmud, which was the, the, the codification of oral law into writing, there were people who would have been sages or, or various brilliant people in different communities around, around the Jewish world who would be the, the, the guides to the oral law. Correct. Those are the rabbis. The, 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 the rabbis and before the rabbis, we were talking in the temple times, it would have been the Kohanim, it would have Correct. been... And then before that is the prophets. So, okay, so you have yeah, all of this. The judges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Human psychology and the, you know, the human the human mind works in such a way that things that are passed down orally change from generation to generation. Like a giant game of telephone. Yeah. So, uh, how but there's a fallacy here in the, in the way that... Because what do people pass on from one person to another? Usually the information is not life or death. For example, if you're dealing with, let's say, in the army... And there has to be messages sent from the front to the command. And it's life or death. And the message is being passed orally. They're not going to screw it up. They're going to make sure that the message is going to get to be exactly what they, the first guy on the front said until he gets to the commanding general. Because it's life and death. You have to understand that the people who are transmitting the tradition viewed what they're transmitting as it's not simply just life or death. 
It's the spiritual life and the spiritual death, not only of themselves, but the entire future of the Jewish people. And they were very, very precise in the way that they transmitted the information. How do we know about this precision? Just look at a Gemara page. They ask, why do they use this particular word and not that particular word? They could have said it this way. Why do they say it that way? The formulation by way that it's written is telling us that they took this at the most extreme seriousness that they could. And, and yet, so, let me let me push back for a second, though. And yeah. and for those of who are regular listeners to the show, we encourage you, for the sake of the nuance, the nuance here, to listen to this episode and then listen to last week's episode because we're getting kind of a, a very orthodox viewpoint on this, and then you're going to get a very a very unorthodox viewpoint, and you can. Do what you want with the mental gymnastics there. I should from say, last though, week. just, I, I don't know what happened last week. Check it out. But <laughs> I'm going to tell you this, that I gave the unorthodox lecture at the University of Nebraska at Omaha before I left, that there was a series of, of lectures called You Unorthodox or Unorthodox. And I was the orthodox giving the unorthodox. Giving the unorthodox. So... But the, the guest we had last week, Dan Liebenson, who has a fantastic podcast called Judaism Unbound, is a big fan of biblical scholarship. And so he was bringing kind of that, the historical scholarly viewpoint to Jewish text and Jewish history and Jewish tradition, just to juxtapose these two episodes because we like living in that kind of, you Jewels. know, that, that world. Um, but even if you read, and, and you're obviously much more well-read in Talmud than I am, if you read a, any given page of Talmud or any page of Mishnah, you'll you will notice that two, three, even four rabbis are arguing with each other over what the tradition that they're passing on is. So there is that little bit of a game of broken telephone. So that's not necessarily a matter simply of broken telephone. Okay. What many times, and this is what when you get into it, we try to figure out what really is the disagreement. We call that in Hebrew machloikis. What is the disagreement between the different positions? And it's really the application of a, the same principle sure. in a different scenario. scenario. Yeah. And so they're not really arguing about whether this happened or that happened. They, everybody agrees that you need to do this, but the question is, doing this, does it apply in, in this scenario? And the answer is, well, no, because of this principle. And the other says, no, no, we do apply it in this but because of that principle. Do, do you have a, like a, just a concrete example to give our listeners? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have one in mind. If something comes up, something I will definitely, I'll circle back as we'll we say. So, so you're a, the secular new doctor at this time in 1999 yeah. in Omaha flipping for the first, no, you, you've read Gmar before, haven't you? Or you've not read Gmar so before? I, look, when I was at NYU, I took classes in, um, you know, in the Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies, the Skirball Hebrew, yeah. Hebrew and Judaic Studies program. It was its own department. Uh, but I spent most of the time dealing with uh, philosophical texts. I was studying in the philosophy department um, we'll doing, we'll get to philosophy a little bit later because but it's a whole. I, but when you read, you know, when you're reading, they always the philosoph the Jewish philosophers quote Talmudic sure texts, so you have to go read them. So you have to figure out what it says. It didn't really interest me for what the text itself says, but what the philosophers what trying the philosophers. to use this for. But it wasn't something foreign to me. Now I'm going to tell you something that I don't really tell people. I am very stubborn, so when you tell me that I can't do something. I will do it. You can't fly. 
Okay, I did, by the way. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did. But the thing is like this. So w- when I couldn't read the Gemara, I said, no such thing. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to break the code. Just out of curiosity. Yeah. Because you're looking at this and you're like, I'm a PhD and all this stuff. I should, I well, should know how to do this. So when I, the way that I got my PhD was, um, it's a story that, you know, my father plays a big role. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my father passed away a few months ago from mm-hmm. COVID-19 in Las Vegas. We're very sorry to hear. And I couldn't even go to the funeral because there was a lockdown. As I, you know, I never thought I would bury my father via Zoom. Oh, yeah. It's a terrible, terrible situation. But anyway, so when I was an undergrad in the California State University in Northridge, I was studying political science, but I was doing political theory. And I took a class in Jewish studies because I needed electives. And the professor who taught her, her name was Shoshana Gershenson. I don't know if she's alive or not. She said to me, look, if you like philosophy, why don't you read Jewish philosophy? And I laughed. I said, there's no such thing. She said, what do you mean there's no such thing? I said, look, <laughs> philosophy is the con- it's about universal ideas. Jewish is about particular ideas. Those two things don't go together. It's either Jewish or it's universal. You can't have both. She said, well, why don't you just come and read? So we agreed on an independent study, and I started reading what we call Jewish philosophers. The first one was Sadia Gaon, then we read Yudha Halevi, and then we read Maimonides, the Rambam. And I couldn't understand a thing that the Rambam was saying. Nothing. I tried to read The Guide to the Perplexed. That's the text we read. When I was in, I want to say, the 10th grade. Oh, no, you're not going to. And I carried it around with me like a badge because it was like, if I have this book, they're going to yeah. be really smart. <laughs> I have this book. People around me don't even know what the word perplexed means. And I, had the, and I tried to read it, and it was a massive fail. So I didn't do so well. So I thought, well, maybe if I read in, the, in Hebrew, I'd have a better shot at it. So I remember that my dad and I drove from, we lived in the valley in Woodland Hills, and we went to Fairfax, which there was one bookstore at the time in the, you know, in the early 90s. And I bought a, a what we call the Morin Avuchim, which I still have and I still use, and didn't make a, didn't help at all. So I had a few questions, and she sent me to her teacher at UCLA. His name was was Herbert Davidson, and he said to me, "Listen, if you really want to understand this, you're going to have to study Greek and you're going to have to study Arabic." I looked at him and I said, "Challenge accepted." <laughs> <laughs> He was just like, can't get out of my office. <laughs> That's a, Well, he actually told me, look, if you're going to study philosophy, Jewish philosophy, you should know you're never going to find a job. He said, we did a study of people who graduated <laughs> with a PhD in this topic, and there's one guy who finished, and he's got a cheese, a special cheese shop in LA. He said, you're going to sell special cheese, but it's still a cheese shop. He said, so he said, maybe you shouldn't do this. And now I'm in. It's probably why they called the guy to the perplexed. Yeah. <laughs> Why'd I do so this? So that was, that was sort of the journey. That was, a, that's what started my it's one hell uh, of a journey. Yeah. And, uh, so there was always a dialogue for me with Maimonides and I called him Maimonides because if you're in academia, you know that he's called Maimonides because there's Maimonides and your Maimonides and his Maimonides. That is, we have <laughs> different views of how to understand this author, this this thinker. He, he famously uh, wrote, well, now, there, there is one viewpoint that he would always write on two levels. One, 
to that's not be Leo's com- trust. That's not you know true. you don't accept that. No, that's no, ridiculous. This, uh, what I was gonna say, no, just, just for the listeners, though, is no, that, the, the, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I, I'm the expert. <laughs> no, you, you definitely Maybe are the expert. Um, but uh, he would write on one level not to piss off the mainstream community, and then he would write on a deeper level with. That's Leo Strauss. With Leo Strauss. So you mean he was like a Chinese bold. restaurant? He had like the, the white people menu and then the menu exactly, for the Chinese people? Exactly, exactly, nah, That That's Leo Strauss because he was running away from the Germans and he had his own. That's how he is maybe. I, I want to get into your understanding of Rambam uh, a little bit later because okay. I'm, I'm, I am I'm uh, an amateur Rambam fan. So good, I, I want to get into that a little later. So you're, you, you go on, you make a PhD of this. You're in Omaha. You're a new professor of... So I was teaching in the Department of Philosophy and Religion. Okay. And I get a call one day. I, I mean, I'm assuming you're trying to figure out why do I look like this? How well, did this happen? Your origin story. That's right. right. Your uh, transformation story. Okay. So this is a shout out to UNMC. They should be a big uh, sponsor for you. They have a lot of money. Call them, yes. So whoever in Omaha, get, get them to pay a dollar. <laughs> or two. <laughs> or two. <laughs> so the UNMC has a transplant center where people from all over the world, I don't know about 114 countries. 117. 117. They may have 114. So come from all over the world for various transplants. And uh, I call her a little old woman, came from Israel to Omaha with her daughter and her son-in-law for a liver transplant. And somehow UNMC reached out to me to be a translator for this family. And they were a Haredi family from Jerusalem. Who happened to come to Omaha to get a transplant. Correct. Okay. Is it possible that the Talmud came from them? No. Okay. No. Well, they wouldn't throw it away. No, no, no. I'm just saying. Another book. He, one of the, well, Anyway, so the story was we started helping them, both my wife and I, and we became like family. We were very, very close. And because the various family members who were with this woman would change because she was on the list waiting for a liver, and her situation deteriorated. There's, it became complicated. So I, she, I was the person who would get the call if she would get a liver. And I got the call. And I remember I went to see her. I told her, you know, this is it. You're getting a liver. And she said something to me that stuck with me. It was very, very powerful. She said, look, I'm not worried at all. Because you're here. It's like you're walking me to get a haircut. So I'm going to the hairdresser. I'm not worried at all. And she went and had the operation. It was very, very complicated. And when she opened her eyes, I was there. And she sort of waved. And uh, she was there for the recovery. And that sort of started our uh, search uh, internally. But professionally, the big change happened because of something happened to me the second day I was in Omaha. Um, so we got to Omaha, and thanks to um, a lovely woman in, in UNO, she got us to stay at an apartment of one of the faculty members. His name is Rami Arav. He's a big archaeologist. Um, and after that, we left his apartment, and we got a, a, another apartment uh, with uh, Schwab Realty. They had a beautiful apartment. Shout out to them. Great uh, landowners. We, Unless know, they're going to sponsor the they show. They will I mean, sponsor, trust me. Okay. Nate is a big, big uh, big sponsor of well, a lot guy, of things. You don't know who you're dealing with. Here. He's going to call Nate after the show. He's going to be like, listen. So, there's these guys. 
this is this is the next wave. You want to hit it big, you know. Forget the Schwab Center. Go with this. <laughs> they put the Schwab juanced. So we stayed at his apartment. Nobody knows we're in town, and the phone rings. And I look at my wife, and I said, "Who is it?" I don't know. Pick it up. So I pick it up, and there's a guy on the phone says, "Shalom, my name is Ari Azriel." Rabbi Ari Israel was a reform rabbi in Omaha, Nebraska. And he said, I heard you came to town. I want to meet you. So we met with him. And he said to me, listen, I just came back from Hebrew Union College, the reform yeah. seminary. And he said, I, and I took this seminar on Jewish philosophy. And you're an expert. I want you to teach Jewish philosophy to my congregants. And I looked at them and I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> what? You have to you have to know Rabbi Arya Israel. He's a dear man. He's a dear man. He's a wonderful man. And I met him uh, at camp when I was a counselor, and he was one of the rabbis. And uh, in Azrui, at Azrui, and oh, he was one of these uh, kind of like a father figure to me at camp. And actually, when I started dating my wife, and he knew her from sure, Omaha, sure. so he was always uh, he was a wonderful guy. He he gave one of the brachot at the Sheva brachot at the wedding. Uh, wonderful, sweet, warm Israeli guy. So I've been in the room with him. Yes, you have. Wonderful, okay. sweet, warm Israeli yeah. guy. Um, the kind of the kind of guy who will, like slap you on your back and give you a big hug, you know, uh, or yell at you, or yell at you. Yeah, yeah, depending. So he sort of caused a switch in my mind because he said, "You are a Jewish educator," and I never thought of myself as a Jewish educator. I you, went. You thought of yourself as like a Jewish educator. Not no, a, not a Jewish I was studying philosophy. He was discussing. In order to no, get, but I mean like you were an educator. In order to get Jewish. paid, I'm willing to teach. I didn't see myself as an educator. When you were, mm-hmm. when you finish your PhD, you have no experience teaching. You essentially are thrusted. I was thrusted into a bunch of undergraduates teaching them about Buddhism and Hinduism and all these things, and I just sort of made it. I mean, thank God I was successful in that. Um, had good, good colleagues that helped me out. Um, but you don't really see yourself as a educator. You see yourself as a scholar, and you're just sharing your knowledge. And if they can understand you, great. If they don't, they'll flunk. Pretty much it. You know, the university gets money one way or the other. But that was the big switch. And that created uh, sort of a searching for me in terms of what's my role. And that sort of led me to where I am today. That I realized that I have a skill of bridging a gap between the medieval texts that I was trained to read to people today who have no idea what they say. Is it common for people that are philosophy professors or religious studies professors to, at a later stage in life, go down a personal path of discovery with one of the philosophies that they were teaching? I don't know. I know that uh, in uh, Orsamer, I met one of the people that I look up to, this person that I ask questions to, Rabbi Dr. Uh, David Gottlieb, who's probably um, the most important living Jewish thinker. You should definitely have him. He is uh, an amazing, amazing logician, and he can tell you. So I, I know him as a path because he also, he did his philosophy, studied at Brandeis, then he went to John Hopkins uh, for, and he was teaching there until he 
ended up at Or Sameach, uh, which Or Sameach really is a, we can get to it, it's a, like a think tank uh, about Judaism in a very, very, um, what we would say, you would say, orthodox way. But we don't think so. I don't think there's any limitations. We are just doing what we're doing. We're reading the text, evaluating them. and So I don't know if there's a lot. But the difference, the Rosh Yeshiva of Arsameh, Rav Schiller, when I came to Arsameh, he told me something that sort of stuck with me. He said, up to now you were studying about Judaism. Now you're doing it. Now you're inside. So I say to students that before I became religious and took this seriously, I was from the UN. So, you know, I was watching Buddhism. That seems to be interesting. They say this and they say that. Islam, I remember I was teaching a class in Islam in the university and there was a Shiite and the Sunnis would argue and they would come and ask me, Who, well, who's right? Who's correct in their interpretation of Islam? I said, guys, you're asking a Jew to tell you. Uh, a Sunni machine are asking a Jewish guy. <laughs> makes sense like, though. <laughs> no, it makes sense. It makes sense that they would ask the, the, the neutral party to be the... Uh, well, decisor. The, yeah. Are, are you starting to be observant at this point? So we... We started, the, you know, around 2000, but it was very slow. Sure. Once we had kids, we sort of had to... Start making choices. Correct. Wait, where's, your, where's your wife in all of this? Oh, her, she, her journey. She's in the front. I was in behind. You were behind. Yeah. She was. She sort of marked what the goals are and moved ahead. And uh, that was sort of my inspiration. She, was, uh, she still is sort of... As much as I am, she's, you know, much more. So you both have, have, have been on this journey together. But independent of one another. Does, I does, remember it it, does it make it easier, though, that, that you didn't have to, let's say, you were put on, because some people get put on a path where, where they'll get very into a certain, you know, maybe one person wants to become more religious, the wife or the husband. Or, or the other way around, religious couples yeah, yeah. who one, one of the couples decide, one of the partners decides to become less religious. Right, right. Exactly. But, but it's like you're not on the same page, you're not yeah. going through a journey together, they're actually you know, polarized against one another in so a way. I, you essentially would have to make a choice and, and it becomes difficult. So to me, to me the, throughout uh, being Jewish was very meaningful, not religious, but being Jewish. And I wanted my kids to have a strong Jewish identity. Because in our marriage is such an issue. In America, we knew that we had to do something about it. And my, we felt that we need to sort of add more, what we would call ceremonial things during the, the day or the, or the week, right? So Shabbat, meals, you know, so if we do Kabbalah Shabbat, so we're going to do Havdalah. And then my wife says, well, we're going to make the house kosher. So I said, okay, you can do whatever you want. And then it hit me. My dishes are going to go to heaven, and I'm going to be outside. <laughs> <laughs> that is, the question for me was a very philosophical decision. Do I believe in the Torah? Because I believe that God exists, both on a rational level and also on an experiential or emotional level. But the question was, is Torah true? If the Torah is true, then what, it doesn't matter what I feel or what I want, I have to line up. And that was sort of the discussion in my mind. And once I made the decision the, that the Torah is emes, it's true, then it was sort of, okay, so you have to change your mind. How, how do you reach that decision? And I'm going to add another, you know, I was kind of thinking with myself, um, and, and I'll be perfectly blunt here, because I always enjoy talking to you. I've always enjoyed talking to you. But there, there is... 
something that kind of I'm very curious about, but has always kind of made me a little mad about you. Okay. Ever since I met you, or ever yeah. since you you made Aliyah and came back to Israel, and that's my association, and maybe I'm wrong. My association has been that one cannot really have a good grasp of history and the development of Judaism from a detached historical perspective and accept the full belief that the Torah is written as the word of God, that we have to accept every single word of it. I'm kind of on the borderline of that. You know, I'm, I'm not exactly orthodox. This is why, you know, people say, are you orthodox? Look, I keep Shabbat, I go to an orthodox shul, but I'm not exactly orthodox in my thinking. Orthodox means... Correct thought. Yeah. Ortho is correct, like orthodontic. Thought. So I call myself orthoprax. Okay. If people really ask me, I call myself orthoprax, but I'm not exactly orthodox. Yeah, you might not even know orthoprax. Just don't be orthodontic. Yeah, Just don't be orthodont. Yeah. <laughs> but but th- what kind of doesn't sit quite with me, and this is what I'm happy to, to explore with partly today, is you did study the historical, and you studied the Absolutely. evolution, and, and you're a full-fledged scholar from an academic, secular perspective and all correct. of these things. And you became Haredi. Oh, so now you're asking about Haredism, as I call it. Which, you know, you say I'm just Jewish, or right? You, you, don't, no, you no, say no, we don't no. call ourselves Orthodox at Orsa no, no, but it's Orthodox. No, 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 I, I don't say that, that we don't call ourselves Orthodox. You, know, you said it like two minutes No, no, ago. I said that we don't block ourselves ah, in terms okay, of okay. the think tank aspect. Mm. Look, when we came to Israel, we did not come here wearing black and white. I recall. And uh, how long we, ago was this? This was nine years ago in the summer. I remember we we met at my yeah, in-laws' just, house. That's right. And you were were literally making Aliyah that week, Correct. and we were finishing our vacation right. that week, and we exactly. met up a week later in Israel and had you guys that's for right. dinner. Yeah, yeah, cool. So we we wanted the only reason we came to Israel is we wanted the best Torah education for our kids. That was to me it was the number one. And the question was, what is the best Torah education? I can provide to my mm. kids. And we came to the conclusion that it is the Haredi school system. The Haredi school system. Correct. Mm-hmm. Because it provides the best Torah skills that we can find. Now, Haredi for me is a tool. It is not Moshe, it's not from Sinai. Moshe Rabbeinu was not Haredi. He didn't, Rambam, he didn't wear the strimal? The, well, he probably <laughs> did. Yaakov Avinu had a strimal. But, uh, I don't know about How do you know? Egypt, what do you mean? Archaeological evidence. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. This is, this is a joke. It's a joke, yeah. So, Haredi is a tool. Okay. It's a tool that was created by rabbis to deal with modernity, with sure. the challenge of secularism. Right. And its attack on traditional Judaism. Right. Now, every tool has its limitations. If you have a hammer, a hammer is an excellent tool, but it's not very good when you're dealing with screws. It's not so you have to know the limitations or the boundaries of how the tool works. And so what I've done is I've paid very close attention to figure out what does this tool do well, mm. what are the weaknesses of the tool, and try to deal with it within the parameters of the community in which I live. So I think I've given my children the best leg to become scholars of Jewish text. I'm not so worried about how they're going to make a living and what that, because I think that I want to invest in their education so that they feel 
a connection and an ability to read any Jewish text that they want. You're not worried about I, their ability to make a living, though. No, because I think that they'll they're smart enough to go to college to get. They have English. They'll m- figure out whatever else they need once they're done with yeshiva and whatever it is, and we'll take care of it. We'll figure it how, out. How old are they now? So we have 17 year olds and almost 14 year olds. So three boys and a girl. Uh, don't call for shiduchim; they're too young. Um, but that's to me. So they weren't they weren't identical twins the, the second no, set none of them they're all fraternal so i can tell them apart is there a history of twins in the family uh now there is <laughs> there wasn't before uh, no quite no comment <laughs> oh my god crazy side sidebar note about twins for a second i was listening to this crazy arnold story. schwarzenegger and danny devito i was listening to this crazy story the other day and, and this is like you should be thankful you don't have identical twins for the story i'm about to tell um there's there's this actor twins twins that are actors in hollywood they're called the sklar brothers Okay. Um, if I showed you a picture, you would instantly know them. Apparently, when they were when they were babies, they were you could literally not tell them apart whatsoever. And their mother, uh, in in when they were in the hospital, could only tell them apart by what they had dressed the babies in. And they had to give the babies for some sort of a checkup at the hospital because they were born prematurely. And when the nurse gave the mothers the baby back, I think their names were Jason and 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 Jeff or something like that. I'm gonna get this wrong. But when they get when they gave the children back. Uh, they were they were wearing different clothing, and the mother didn't know which is which, mm. and it was a real crisis for her, like a very deep crisis of of identity as a mother. Like I failed as a mother. I don't know which one of my children is is which, and I really don't know. Like there's no way to tell. The nurse doesn't remember what she did. This was back, you know. There wasn't any identifying way to figure it out. They hadn't yet been fingerprinted to see. Uh, you know who was it was it was a very strange situation and to make a long story short she had to choose she just like let's flip a coin this one's this one this, this one's, one's the other one. and when they grew up um, they found a way to track down some sort of an identifying mark or something like that and they figured out uh, which one was actually which and, and, and the mother was actually correct but it was it was 50 50 I mean so I, we read a book about this and the trick was you should put nail polish on them. Oh, that's a good one. And that way, you'll always know who's who. The blue one with the nail polish is this guy, as opposed to the one without that is not. Yeah. I, I got to say, that, because naming babies is kind of arbitrary, that one wouldn't bother me so much as what we talked about earlier, which did bother me and didn't bother you. I'd be glad to get your opinion. Did you see the story in the news today, in the Haredi news, about... A guy who, a family that had been living in a very Haredi community here in Israel. He was a rabbi. He was a moil. And it turned out he was an undercover Christian missionary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw uh, that. I don't know the details. but I that, don't know why they're hiding me. his face. That bothered me. That bothered me deeply. And you were like, eh, whatever. I don't care. I didn't care. So Also, I think it's kind of crap because, like, wouldn't his community be, shouldn't his community be able, he, was, he disguised himself as a rabbi, which is like, you have to be a seriously... You have to be playing a real long game and be seriously educated if you're going to go around calling yourself a rabbi to a bunch of Haredi Jews who should understand whether or not you're authoritative enough to be a rabbi. Like, couldn't they figure out that he was full of, you know, like, full of crap? What, what, what's your take on this? Like, wouldn't you know if your rabbi wasn't like a real rabbi? No. But like, if he was like a goy, like, wouldn't you know? Look, um, I'm just sort of thinking in my mind. We had a problem like that in Omaha. Yeah. We had someone who pretended to be Jewish, infiltrated the Jewish community, mm. uh, caused a lot of problems, pretended to be a rabbi, 
Pretended to be a rabbi. Pretended to be a rabbi. Um, since you have people from Omaha listening, they're like, what? What? Wait, which one? I'm Ooh, not, was- I'm not, no more details. What? But it turned out that the guy now lives in Turkey as a Muslim. Uh, pretending? I don't know. <laughs> but he was, uh, he was a Mormon with Yichus to the, you know, the, the real Brigham Young. I just, don't under, I just don't understand how somebody could, in, in that case as well, but like Look, especially people, in the Haredi world, like how do you not spend 20 years studying something and you can do it if you're smart? You just have to be really smart. Or just spend 20 years doing something. Or be a real class A bullshit artist. I just want to know how they found out. They said they were, again, I just briefly read the newspaper yeah. article. They said they were, his wife had died. His wife had died, and um, they started looking into the family and then found some weird things about the family in the States and also things that they had said, such as Holocaust survivors, etc., uh-huh. that turned out not to be true. Is it possible that he was an ethnic Jew who was just a Jew for Jesus who believed in, in Jesus as the Messiah? From the little bit that I read, I don't recall that being true, but but I'm, let's talk more about the principle of the story and not... No, because I'm thinking that would be like, I've met Jews for Jesus in life who were like, you know, hi, my name is Bob Rosenthal. Like he he legit comes from a Jewish family and then he himself like decided that he believes in in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And okay, so he became Christian. He calls himself a Jew, but like, okay, like I guess, yeah. It it doesn't, look, it bothers me on a personal level because I hate to see any Jew stop being Jewish, but but. If you're upfront about it, you know the, the the what bothers me is the the hiding aspect of this and the, the subliminal messaging. And so I'll tell you, a few years ago, uh, I met with a Catholic priest who is halachically Jewish. I know this guy, and uh, he told me that there are Christians living as Haredim as in Masharim. Really? Told me he says there are. Says that okay. It's a very interesting guy, by the way. And you gotta. I mean, <clears throat> I'll tell you what. I mean, I know, I know you guys are are arguably and 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 rightfully for your for your own sakes more concerned about it than I am, but because I think it's probably a very minor, you know, phenomenon. But in a in some way, in like some small way, put aside that it's like it's wrong to live like that and to deceive your neighbors and whatnot. Like to be so devoted to your ideology that you're going to like basically live as a spy and like covert yourself and play such a long game that you're going to be a Christian living in Masharim as a Haredi guy for God knows how long. And I don't know what, what do you gain out of it? Like, I, I don't get, what are you going to do? With I mean, I, I, yeah. maybe there's some sort of a mental health issue going on there. I don't know like, what the story I, is. I, I don't know what the story is, but like, I mean, I got to give him at least like an A for effort. <laughs> It's a little. Yeah, it's not a you know. It's not an easy life. You know? No, there could have been other locations you could yeah, select. You, you could have just been like an evangelical Christian living I in mean, like, you know, Jefferson, Missouri, having a good time and and, yeah. and not worrying about oh, your yeah, double yeah. life. Right. Oh, but but back to my back to my uh, okay. what yeah. we were talking about is how did how did you how do you okay this is because it's an interesting answer you gave about the Haredi as like a toolkit right and Correct. and basically what you're saying if I'm understanding correctly is you you understand the the pros and the cons of the Haredi lifestyle and the Haredi educational system, and you're choosing it despite knowing it's also its limitations. Why not, and this is something I always wonder, why not something like the Datilumi world or even the Khardal world that incorporates... You didn't have to explain Khardal. So, 
listeners. It's not mustard. You know what I mean? It's, it's, not, yeah, mustard. it's not mustard. <laughs> yeah, what the mustard um, acronyms in, in Hebrew. There, there are multiple ways of being observant and just for our listeners' sake of being observant and religious here in Israel. And the ultra-Orthodox is one way and it's one community. It's a more kind of closed-off community. Um, there's kind it's of... not closed-off. Not at all. More closed off than, than other communities. I don't think so. You don't think so? Okay, we'll Not get to that Would in a second. Would you prefer the word insular? Insular? No. How would you no. describe it? I, I, I find it very open, very welcoming. Um, oh, it's definitely welcoming. I didn't say it's not welcoming. So in what sense do you mean? In the sense, and, and this is my understanding of the difference between the modern Orthodox community and the and the ultra orthodox community in, in as a as a concept is you're only opening yourself up to the to the outside society as much as you need for practical reasons versus in Israel we call datilumi or kind of like the modern orthodox community which sees itself as an integral part of the larger community in Israel and that it must be in every place in the military in the school system in the government etc cetera, etc cetera, versus you know the ultra orthodox society which which says only as much as we need to. Well, I think that I think that um, the Haredi um, Haredi is ultra orthodox, by the way, for yeah. those listening. But I don't know. If, okay, they call them Haredi. They don't say ultra orthodox. Yeah, no, I'm just saying it for our, our yeah, guests. But I think they should listeners. learn the term Haredi mm. and just that. Okay. But I think that there's um, a progression mm. of where the Haredi world was when. It was founded in Eretz Israel by you know the Chazonish, um, in order to deal with what was happening, right. which was systematic um, attack by the secular government to weaken the, any connection of the immigrants to Judaism. I mean, they didn't hide it; they um, discriminated against people who wanted to send their kids to religious schools. They would not give them jobs. They would spread them out to all sorts of kibbutzim and moshavim that they well, had. To be no. fair, anyone who was on a mapainik didn't get a job back then. I mean, no, no, no. But this was systematic with okay. regard to religious. Okay. I mean, they from Jews from Yemen and Morocco. They cut their pay off. I mean, there was a, a, a very, very uh, uh, active program about r- ripping, I mm. would say, uh, any aspect of traditional Judaism. From so that Haredi looked very differently in the 30s, 40s, 50s sure. than what it looks like now. We also right. the Haredi community is much much bigger yes. than it used to be, and Baruch Hashem is growing, and as it's growing, it no longer is insular because there are, it's got confidence. They got Haredim everywhere. Yeah, also in the government, also in the army. Sure. Okay, so I think that. Um, the question is not necessarily um, where to be found in the Israeli society, um, but the question is what role do we want to have in uh, in society? And I think that you find that, at least the way that I see, I understand the Haredi community, is that we see ourselves as the ambassadors to bring people closer and closer to the Kaddish Baruch that's the purpose. I, I want to get back to that in a second because because it, it, that doesn't seem to be the outcome. But uh, but my question was more: you weren't any of any of the different religious camps in Israel. So you you come to Israel. You're not yet wearing a black kippah, which which again for, for I wore a black one. 
But it wasn't but velvet. Velvet, right. You okay. just have to be... Uh, right. So, But it was black. But there are different religious camps in Israel that you could have chosen to go with. Right. Assuming, assuming there's no what we call divine providence. What do you mean? We came to Rehovot for no good reason. I still don't know why. You still don't know? It's because we lived here. Uh, yeah. So we, <laughs> we somehow we came here not knowing anything. Okay. And when we came here, um, we tried to get our kids signed to the religious schools. And I remember I met with the, the rabbi of the Haredi community. And he said, you know, if you want to be part of the community, we don't wear that. And I said, okay. What was that? The, this type of knitted yarmulke you wear, the one, the skull cap that I wear. And I said, okay, doesn't mean much to me. I, 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 I'm not here for that. If I need to change this, it's not something that is essential that I'm going to change. So that would bother, that would that would bother me though, and, and, I'm, and I'm sitting here quietly. And I'm, I'm but like, if you're you, part, and I, and I'm, I'm about chafe, to say you chafe at anything no, that like I, makes you change. Look, it's, no, it's understandable. It, it's not. It, this isn't at all a pushback. Okay, this isn't a pushback. You're you, I'm me. This is you know everyone that you can teaches. Push back. I'm, I'm, no, I'm not, I'm not pushing back. I'm legit not pushing back. I'm, I'm saying he'll, me, he'll push back when he wants to. Though. Good, <laughs> good. For, for, for me, that would bother me because I would say to myself, I you know. Of all the things that could matter in this universe, why can't I be a part of your community because I like to wear a certain type of hat? Like, come on. Like, this is my hat. This is your hat. Like, this is what's important now. Well, I think that's that, kind of. I think that. Um, like, accept me for me. It's not a question of accepting me for me. He's not. I'm not asking him to accept me for me because he would. But he says there is a certain community standard that we require in our school. For example, and you had a dress. Had you, sorry, had you already decided you want to send your kid to Haredi school? Yeah, you we did. said we 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 looked into different schools. You looked into different schools, and they said this this uh, we figured these are the best schools that we could find. And and for example, why not like a Datilumi school, like a more modern Orthodox type school? Because a we felt that I didn't want a wishy washy, and I mm. felt that I was wishy washy, that I'm not sending a clear picture. I looked at I looked at my relationship to the Torah or to mitzvot, not as taxes that I should avoid them if I can. And if I can't, then I'll just pay. That is, do the mitzvah. I looked at them as opportunities to connect to the Kaddish Baruch Hu, and I wanted to do more. Not, I, it's not what, not what I'm comfortable, it's I need to do more. And so that was to us where we wanted to belong. Now, the school said, this is the uniform, this is the requirements, this is what it is, this is what it is. I said, okay, we have to play by the rules. And that was essentially what it was. Um, and I understood it. I don't take it as, um, you know, religiously um, from God that he declared that I must wear white and black. But it's sort of like, you know, I belong to this community. I share the vision of this community. And we are on a one vision and one mission, which is to serve the Kaddish Baruch Hu, serve God the best we can with the skills that we have. And I felt that this is where I want to be. Where does the, for people that aren't, including myself, because, because I think my understanding probably is, is, is flawed, why, why does Haredi, uh, why do Haredi communities choose a black and white uniform almost? I think that... Uh, you don't have to pick an outfit in the morning. <laughs> no, I mean, okay. that's, that's, a, that's a benefit for sure. But Look, I think that the dress came because of there's a mitzvah, there's a aspect of a good deed to look your best 
when you're praying to God. And the standard looking the best is wearing, you know, a suit, and a tie, and a, you know, a dress shirt. Now, they could have picked any color. But remember, when they did, it was sort of black and white. That's what people dressed as the most formal way. And it sort of stuck. But it stuck. It turns, it, out stuck. Just, it turns out only the pictures were black and white. They were actually wearing color. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you go, if you see photos of Hebron Yeshiva from Hebron. Yeah. The old Hebron wear, Yeshiva. Yeah. In Hebron, in like the before 20s. the massacre, they would wear white suits. White suits with straw hats. Do you remember? We 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 used to when I started becoming more religious. It was at a Sephardic shul. Okay, and we kind of used to jokingly laugh at like the Ashkenazi yeshiva bachers with the black and white. And we always, me and me and a friend of mine, Tzachi, had an inside joke that we need to come in tan suits and straw hats because that's yeah. more Sephardi. <laughs> <laughs> so if you see the photos of, of the old Knesset Israel and the Yeshiva and Hebron, yeah, they would wear, you know, many of them wore white, completely everything white with straw hats. That's so bold. That's bold. The laundry bills, right? spilling, I would, it would be stained. Yeah, constantly. Completely, constantly. So I, I think that is sort of simply something that People said, this is what we do, and everybody sort of lined up. Do you get upset when you see, do you get as upset as I when I see people that, because I, I knew it came from that, like the, the, the desire to look your best. So when you see people that look like schlumpy, like wearing ill-fitting no, suits. No, and, you know. Do you want to like look at him and be like, dude, like we're supposed to be looking our best. I'll tell you, your best I'll today. tell you, I don't try to get other people to live or serve God the way that I do. For example, to me, time is a function or an aspect of my service to God. There are people who time is, doesn't play any role in the service to God. What do you mean by that time? Like For example, prayers have to be on time. There is set times you pray on this and like this and like this. You learn from this time to this time. Right? If you tell me to be somewhere, I will be on time. I don't remember being late. I can't be late. I would leave, you know, that's how I am. Time yeah, is an aspect I'm, of my I'm personality. don't do anything on time. <laughs> so, but I don't apply that to other people. I am neat, a neat person, so I don't like to be looking like a schlumpy, you know, with shirts outside, it's the dirty stuff. But there are people who just don't care. So I, I don't try to impose my will on them. It, that's No, clearly not, but you have an opinion. There's a difference between asserting your will on somebody else and thinking I, one know, way of somebody. I, there's, there's, there's a concept in Judaism, especially during this time of year, that we have to judge people favorably and not focus on the negative. And so it just doesn't, you know. Doesn't. Now, if a guy like this would come to me and say, listen, I want to meet a girl. I said, eh, <laughs> wait a second. First, <laughs> brush your teeth. Then let's talk about <laughs> Start talking... You know, when I see a guy who is sort of the shirt is halfway in, the zipper, I said, oh, now you look yeshivish. Because, you know, then you're not really, you don't really care what you look like because you're in yeshiva with a bunch of other guys. Yeah. And it's all about just being comfortable. Yeah. So it doesn't bother me. Do values of, going back to, to kind of like the roots of, of, of like the Rambam, for example. Yeah. I mean, he, he's a fascinating character that I think a lot of people, uh, they know the name. They've heard of the Rambam. They might associate it if they're a little bit more intellectual. They might understand, you know, that there's the guy to be perplexed. They would maybe know a little bit of the history, Toledo in Spain, and and uh, there's this... He was I never in Toledo. Right, he was never there, of course. Cordoba. Cordoba, Cordoba, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, and there's this iconic sort of 
picture of him, which is obviously not him, because he didn't stand for a photo. photo. Uh, but they don't know much more than a black and white photo. <laughs> they, don't, they don't they don't know much much more than that. And I and I think that there's a lot of that that just has to do with, you know, we live in a uh, in a time where if you're not actively seeking information, you know, it's not part of the 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 repertoire of of, of things that most people know about, probably because he didn't write it in a very simple, easy way to understand. Um uh, but and like your 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 uh if you was your your teacher or your mentor professor at the time said to you that you need to study uh, not that mentor sorry that you went to the guy's office and he said you need to learn you know, how to read an Arabic Arabic, Greek. right uh you know that's once you can do that it could be more accessible but it's not accessible to like Joe Schmo in the street sort of accessible and and there's no cliff notes version of it there's cliff notes versions of it um well let me, let me right. ask, there's a question here yeah which is how how can his uh, the philosophy, the Rambam, can't, how can it be passed down or how can it be ca- become accessible to the majority of people or can it be scaled? Well, b- before that, I mean, let's take a quick step back. Just quickly, who was the Rambam? What time period are we talking about? Just to put everyone on the same page here. Okay, so the Rambam was born in 1135. Mo- in Moshe Spain. Ben Maimon. Right. He was born in Spain, in the city of Cordoba. Um, I went to the shul. Or the shul where his statue is. <laughs> so the shul where his statue is. <laughs> and it's not even his statue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's with the Spanish government. Yeah, okay. It's Cordoba in Spain. You can't call it a shul. Right. That word does not exist. It's, it's right. Cordoba in Spain. And um, he died in 1204 in, in Egypt. He spent most, until the age of 16, he lived in Spain. And then I, he moved around. He went to North Africa. Ended up, he was in Eretz Israel for a little bit. And then ended up in Egypt and spent most of his time in Egypt. He was a doctor. He was a physician. Physician, like a medical yes. doctor. Yes. I make a distinction between a doctor and a physician because I'm a doctor. It's, it, pe- pe- <laughs> it's, you know, people always joke like, you know, the joke about the the, the, the father on, on the airplane and is right. making fun of his son for getting a PhD. And, you know, when someone calls it a doctor, you'd be like, oh, I'm a doctor of linguistics. It's not going to help you. But the original doctor is actually Correct. the PhD and the the medical doctor is a physician and not a doctor. That's so funny because I think it's always backwards. Switch to people. I like, know, I know. Oh, he's a doctor, like a doctor, doctor, or like right. you know, a doctor. Like I say, yes, I am a doctor, doctor. But I wrote on the afterlife. My book it's on Amazon. Don't buy it, please. But if you do, so you have issues with insomnia. Buy it. Well, what is, what's the book called? It's uh, unconscious immortality. Uh, is this basically subconscious? Is this the PhD that you turned into? A yeah, book? it's about immortality in medieval philosophy. It's so if you. I, I tell a joke that I was on a plane and they called for a doctor, and, and I say should. to the I say to the flight attendant, uh, "Is the passenger going to die?" And she says, "Well, I don't know." I said, "Well, if it's, she's going to die, I can explain to her what afterlife <laughs> she's, she's going to get if she's Buddhist, Hindu, whatever it is. Here's what's happening. But otherwise, get a physician." <laughs> That's my joke. Look, the Rambam... That's, so the a funny, that's a funny joke in the abstract. Yes. If that really happened, that's terrifying. <laughs> that is terrifying. <laughs> That'd be awful. <laughs> so, why the Rambam is important? The Rambam was um, a man that wrote major works on Jewish texts. His first work, um, although... Professor Davidson argued that he didn't write it, but I don't think that was accepted in academia. He wrote a book called um, Milotai Gayon, 
It is a short, very short book when he wrote around 18. Words of logic, if we want to It's about logic. Yeah. It is about logic. And it's essentially a summary of Aristotelian logic for the beginners. Um, then he wrote a commentary on a Jewish text called Mishnah. And those two books were written in Arabic. So, you know, it's this is we're talking and about. He's in he's in North Africa at the time. He, no, he's and he was in Muslim in, Spain before. So. Yeah. So his, Arabic, Arabic would have been his. That was his native language. That was but he's writing to a Jewish audience that essentially is Arab speaking. And so he's writing to them. Um, then he writes and he takes him 10 years. So from the age of 30 to 40, he writes his monumental code of Jewish law. So you have to remember that at the time, if you wanted to know what the Jew, what Jewish law says about can you eat this chicken if you ate this piece of cheese or the other way around, you would have to pull 2,711 pages of Talmud to try to find the answer somewhere. You didn't have a code of Jewish law. You didn't have the uh, the cliff notes. It's Asfaria. No, no Safari and no cliff notes. Do you do you want use Safari by the way? I do. It's great, isn't it? I do. Yes, but there's no haskamas, so you have to be very careful uh. because there are some texts there that are from a religious perspective very problematic. Okay, and they're not reliable. They're good to learn, but they're not reliable for if you want to make if a, you want an answer a, an answer. Yeah. Okay, but that's a separate. I use Safari all the time. I actually uh, sent them an idea for an app, um, so but they didn't contact me. So it's okay. Whatever. So the Rambam wrote his monumental code of Jewish law, which is called Mishneh Torah, the second Torah, which codifies all Jewish law. Anything that you would ever think of, it's there. It took him 10 years, and if you look at the amount of material he's covering, and if you say, okay, so it took him 3,650 days to write, and you take the amount of chapters that are in this book, you figure that every two days, two th- every three days, he produced one chapter. Wow. Handwriting, ha- handwriting too. Well, it's not that. That one chapter has laws from every section of rabbinic writing that you can imagine. That he is putting all of this huge amount of information in his brain and is spitting it out in a logical order going from the universal to the particular. And every day, every three days, one chapter. Is he a human being? It is unbelievable. No, I'm like, I'm serious. Like, is that... It's one of... It's do people hold him to be a human like you and me yes. and Dan? Yes, absolutely. He, he's or is of, he like a... I, I think you can, you can unarguably like us, say he's, he's one of the great geniuses of, yeah. of the known historical world. Yeah. Would they... I mean, I'm, I'm assuming if, if, he, if he a was person also a like him was around today... He was also a well-known physician and... and That's after. After. I'm, I'm assuming that if he... To the government... I mean, yeah. he was doing a lot of things. This Correct. wasn't all he was doing. Correct. I, I'm assuming that if he was around today, people would consider him a savant of the highest order and, and they would probably want to study his, his brain as to how, how this is... How, how is he so efficient to be yeah, able he's to a, do all of this? The Ramam is, is an unbelievable thinker. Then he has... Much he, less have time to eat. Now, he writes letters throughout his life to different people that we have collections of these letters. Some of them are very, very interesting. And then he writes later on in his life, he writes a book called Guide of the Perplexed in Arabic that is essentially a book written to Jews 
who studied philosophy and are confused about how to understand the Torah. For our Emirati listeners, of which we have many, uh, just Emir- all over the Middle East. How do you how do you say the name of the book in Arabic? The Lalat al Hairin. Okay. So, according to this book, he's explaining to f- people who studied philosophy how the Torah is true. See the connection? Mm. Which means I studied philosophy. I'm looking at the Rambam, and he's telling me, "Here's how you need." to look at the Torah. This is how you need to understand God. And there is no contradiction between rationalism, between science, and our traditional, that is tradition, of understanding of the Masorah, of the tradition of the Jewish people. There's no contradiction. And he was well-versed in Aristotelian philosophy yes. and logic. He wasn't an Aristotelian. He you don't think so? critical. He's, he says it, he brings okay. it, he, he contradicts, he argues against Aristotle in the second book all the time. There are, in academia, people say, oh, he was an Aristotelian. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. He was, he was very critical of Aristotle. Is he, is he studied in academia? Yes. By non-Jewish, yeah. as, as a yeah. master philosopher yeah, yeah. of his time? It's interesting that there was, there actually, um, I think there's at least one commentary on a guide of the perplexed written by a Muslim in the Middle Ages, that the Muslim picked up the book and was like, wow, and he wrote a commentary on this Jewish book. It's unbelievable. Which which leads me to my next question, which is, did he realize that of himself, that he was a, There's a, a, letter that he wrote. a philosopher of the highest level? And well, he didn't consider himself a philosopher. That wasn't his... his he's, he's a person that serves Hashem, serves God. He has a letter, it's a very, very interesting letter, that he writes to his student, and his student is living in Baghdad, and people are coming up to the student, bad-mouthing the Rambam. And the student fights back. Rambam is Maimonides. That's the, we call him in Hebrew, Rambam. Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. And the student is fighting with them, showing them how they're wrong. And the Rambam wrote to his student and said, don't say anything. Don't answer them. The Rambam says, I go to synagogue in Egypt and people come and argue <laughs> argue with me about what I wrote in the Mishnah Torah. And he says, and I don't answer them. And he says, you know who I am. And he says, no one understands what I've done. Only in a few generations will they understand what I've done. So this is his answer to our modern dilemma, which is don't ever read the talkbacks on Twitter yeah. About what you write, don't don't engage with people that <laughs> that want to talk to you on Facebook and I have tear learned, down you, I have your articles learned, and your arguments. It's not yeah. worth the the effort. Well, I, it is, it's important to point out, you know, um, but not because he thought they were idiots. No, he just understands they don't understand what I'm doing. For example, this week in my Gemara year, we're learning. Uh, you know, this is going to be a little bit too much detail for some people, but we're learning about people who have a joint courtyard. Okay. They have a joint courtyard. So the Jewish law says that you have to build a wall to separate the courtyard because people do private things in the courtyard. And that I don't want to see what you and your family are doing in your courtyard, and you don't want to see what I'm doing, so we build a wall. And the question is, what do we do in a vegetable garden? Do we have to build a wall or not? And it sounds like it, that you would need to build a wall in a vegetable garden. The Rambam writes that you don't need to build a wall. It's enough to build a short fence that just demarcates the boundaries of your section to mine. 
So there are rabbis in Lunel, which is in Provence, in France at the time. They wrote to the Rambam and said, we read the Gemara, the same Gemara, the same Talmud that you're reading, and we understand that you need to build a wall. What's going on? And he says to them, people as great as you shouldn't be asking this question. <laughs> he says, what do you mean? And he said, the reason that we build the Gemara, the Talmud says you build a wall is because we don't want people looking at the vegetables. But he says, but that's from piety. You don't do private things. We're not going to force people to build walls now because people want to be more pious than others. That's not. So we just build something. It's a brilliant, brilliant idea. And he has sources for them. So I think that the genius of the Rambam was recognized in his generation. By some. And certainly was... Now I think about even in... People understood that you're dealing with Somebody on the high, because you could see the letters that people wrote to him. But he wasn't fully accepted at the time. Well, not on every issue. He had two major, two major opponents. Um, we're not really sure what the issue was, um, but the Rambam didn't take them on directly. He was very indirect. Who were they? Uh, I don't remember. That. One of them is is uh, Shmuel uh, Ben Chofni in Baghdad, and he had people in. Uh, in Babylon, in uh, Egypt, but it's not in a sense that is, you know, earth-shattering. The issues with the Rambam later on were about what he wrote in the Guide of the Perplexed, that there are people who said, don't take him seriously. He doesn't mean what he said. And that's where the problems become. How, how does, I mean, this is more of a logistics question. Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying not to be off track on this, but like, the way we're talking about him is it, it it could be equally the way that we would talk about him in terms of how you know how people around the world are hearing his message of you know he was around today it's people were in Iraq writing to him people were in France writing to him yeah. people were in Egypt people were here in in, in Eretz Israel uh, and they're writing to a person and we forget when we say that it's easy to forget that we're talking about the, you know the 13th century. Uh, well, he says twelfth and tw- yeah. Yeah, and and there is no modern communication. The printing press is no, it's letters. It's letters, handwritten letters, handwritten letters. Yeah, and you're not living in a globalized world. If you're sending a letter from if a student in 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 Baghdad is sending him a letter, it's going to take several months to reach him. If, not months. It's it, not doesn't remember. There's caravans traveling. Sure, okay. All the time. It's going to take a while. It's yeah, going to take a while. Let's say a couple of weeks. It's not guaranteed. It's going to arrive. That actually, that actually, look, the, the, you have to know that the modern, the banking system was developed by Jews during the Middle Ages. Because what you would do is you would get a letter of credit. You would, you had money in, let's say, Baghdad. Yeah. You're not going to take your money with you. My, my cousin Moshe is good for You're going to go yeah. with a letter of credit, okay, to, let's say, Cairo. And you're going to show your letter of credit to one of the merchants there. And he's going to say, okay, based on this, I have needs in Baghdad so this is going to pay for that and that's what they would that was essentially the modern banking system it was it wasn't people traveled all the time there's trade there's there's trade there's there's sure but and it was reliable my point is that it's not it's not instant communication absolutely and it's you have to have a little bit of effort and and with effort you have to have a lot a lot of intent and and patience and and patience and it's um it's a lot more it gives a lot more meaning to the story of of you know people were in contact with him at that time because Correct. it's not 
it's not like now where it's like, oh, I have a good idea. I'll go shoot off an email to that guy who's at this institute of higher and you know learning yeah. and whatnot. It's maybe he'll write back, maybe he won't, and and then it's like he didn't write back. It's like, oh, what a jerk. He didn't he didn't read my email. It's like no, you, you know, if somebody wrote you a letter, you you know, write him back. Well, I don't know that the Rambam answered every every letter. I don't know, but we have a lot of answers, and we know that that's what rabbis did, and rabbis still do that. That they, you know, sometimes I get letters from students, the emails with, or people around the world that ask me questions. You know, I have, I don't know, about 200, maybe more uh, classes on YouTube on in Jewish philosophy, different areas. And people watch, some of them are, you know, three, 4,000 people watch them. What are, what's the name of the channel on YouTube? No, no channel. Just if you look at, look at Rabbi Guy Matalon on the YouTube, I'll pop right up and you'll see various stages of my beard. <laughs> <laughs> um, talking about all sorts of things. You know, when you think about letters, the way that we know about, let's say, Yudha Halevi, which is a famous writer, philosopher in the Middle Ages, about the letters that he sent back and forth. And that we say he died because there are no more letters. That's essentially how we figure out that somebody died, that that's it. Yeah, that's interesting. Or that there's a letter that said, oh, he died because they sent a letter. Oh, no, no, this person died. So we go, oh, so he died. So that's how historians actually figure out what happened to people. I, I have to jump in. You said something earlier that it's you know incredibly hard to read, and it is hard to read. I've tried to read all of these, and I've taken you know college classes in Jewish philosophy, trying to read these in the original and the translations, with what you know as best I can. Um, Micha Goodman puts out put out uh, a book on, on Guide to Perplexed and okay. on Yudah Levi's Kuzari where he does make it um, very accessible to the modern Israeli reader. Um, and it's it's also been translated into English, and they're widely popular now, like these books. What do you think about books like that? Are they I, acceptable, or does it, does it dilute the message? I don't know. I can't tell you about something that I haven't read. You haven't read uh, his books? No. Well, I'd be curious to get your uh, take on them. Okay, so... You have to line, you know, there's a long line of there's books. There's a long line I'm, of books always, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So has, has, did your view of Rambam, of the message, of the validity change as you became a more religious person? Yes. How so? Well, in the beginning, in the beginning. In the beginning. <laughs> when I was in university, you know, I was reading the papers of Leo Strauss and all the various scholars who were telling me about Maimonides. Um, and it takes a lot of um, gump or courage to argue against the big academic sure. scholars who sure. are writing and everyone sort of follows their footsteps. Um, but once you enter the sort of the yeshiva world and you say, okay, take the text, read the text, what do you think he says? And the question is, do I believe what he says when he says it? And I think that just as a principle in philosophy or in, in textual interpretation, if somebody says X, we should believe when he says X that X means X. And not try to find hidden meanings in Correct. text, which is what a lot of these modern scholars... Correct. Did. So I'm not saying that everything that they say is, is wrong. I think that the question is to take the Rambam. You can't say that the Rambam was an Aristotelian deist didn't really believe in the validity of the Torah and believed in God, when he spent most of his life studying Jewish law, wrote a code of Jewish law, kept acting as a rabbi and the leader of the Jewish world, 
And to say, well, there wasn't really an option for him, so you had to. I think this is your reading of your challenge, your difficulty, back to the 12th century. I don't think that that is a valid representation of the Rambam. I think the Rambam was uh, uh, a religious, devout Jew that had a very sophisticated understanding of God and his relationship to the physical world. He wrote about this in his writings, but he was a committed Jew. I'm not using the term Orthodox or not Orthodox. At the time, I mean, there wasn't those delineations. Correct. Um, <coughs> I'm, I'm curious. Do you consider yourself a Rambamist? Uh, and what, what does that mean? What does yeah, that mean? What does that I, mean? I, I was going to... What does that mean? <laughs> I didn't get a t-shirt. <laughs> no? What does that mean? You didn't, is it, didn't get the... Uh, is that like a beast? A, a lot of people... Um, and I'm going to ask this from a, a more limited understanding, but a lot of people kind of split those in the Jewish world between rationalists and mystics, right? You're looking at me like I'm crazy. No. I, if you read in the Gather of the Perplex, in book three, I think it's chapter 54, then you'll see that 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 determination... Look... You're bringing, if you, I understand your mysticism is mean Kabbalah and Hasidicism. Or Ramban, or kind of like a more Ramban, okay. Ramban type Okay, approach. so that's really the question of, of what, how much did the Rambam know of Kabbalah? Did he have it? Was it integrated? Did he know it? That is a very, very big topic. Um, and there are different views about this. So the Baal Shem Tov, for example, that Mahalach says that the Rambam knew Kabbalah. And he was Kabbalah is the uh, Jewish, Jewish book of mysticism. It's not a book. It's, it's a field of mysticism. Sure. The Zohar is the yeah, right, right, right. sorry, one of the books. Yeah, Sefer. But there's lots of books. Um, so I think that we think of philosophy in a modern sense, which is de devoid of religiosity. Mm. But that's not the story of the Middle Ages. Take Aquinas, take Anselm, right? All the Christian thinkers. Take Averroes, Ibn Rushd. Uh, Al-Farabi, Al-Ghazali, Ibn Sina, all of these are people who are religious in their faith, and they're still philosophers. Mm -hmm. very, some of them are very good. Ibn Rushd was a very, very good, uh, top-notch rationalist. Nobody studied Aristotle until Kant without reading Ibn Rushd. So... Um, but they were all religious. I mean, Ibn Rushd was a Qadi, was a judge, no, no, a Muslim. You, so, My question is different. My question is, okay. and I was listening to a different podcast uh, about someone who just wrote about this kind of split in Jewish thinking along the ages. What, what I mean by, by mysticism and rationalism in that sense is, and I'd be glad to hear where you think the Rambam was on this. So the belief that you know, if God set out the rules of nature and physics are the rules of nature, is there um, divine intervention for each individual of us? Do our prayers matter? Okay, and and there are kind of two schools of thought, from my understanding, in Judaism, in classical Judaism, along this line, that my prayers matter, or my prayers can't change what God has set out because that's the laws of physics and that's how nature works now. Do you understand where, where I'm trying yes. to go with this? Yes. So where is Rambam? Where is the Rambam? On this? On this? So the Rambam believes that God has a will. God doesn't operate by necessity. So when you deal with a 
divine uh, being that is run by necessity, you run into all these problems. But you cannot believe in the Torah and believe that God operates only under necessity. Because the very uh, aspect of prophecy is that God selects an individual and tells him X. And that is a will, a divine will. Um, so the Rambam would not be in that uh, situation. How to look at prayer, that's a very, very deep issue. It's not, it's not so simple in Judaism, in general, um, even if you want to make a dichotomy, um, because even in the myst- more mystical sense, um, there's another. There are other things that are happening. Um, as I with think, prayer, I think we're gonna have to do a follow-up episode for all this. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we don't need to. I don't want to get overcomplicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that for the Rambam's from the Rambam's perspective, one's prayer does have efficacy, um, even if it changes who you are. Who you are, right? That's something else. But it's not. But it's not that it goes unnoticed. Sure. God is not a being that has no nothing to do with us. That would be a but an Aristotelian kind of thinking, though, wouldn't it? Of course, but that the Rambam doesn't have that. The whole point, the whole point of the Rambams in in the second book, is to argue against Aristotelian physics, and to show that it's not simply a matter of causality. There is divine will, um, and I think that that's the unmoved mover. Yeah, the unmoved mover is sort of this machine that is. Constantly moving, right. but that's not it. You don't get to Jewish history if it's just unmoved mover. Uh, and I and I think that if a Jew thinks about why are we still here, how is it that there are still people who believe in the Torah of all the things that we've done? There's people who actually, you know, if you went a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, I think they would be shocked that there are people who still follow their teachings. But Rabbi Akiva would go, "Wow, unbelievable." And, you know, Yeshayahu and Navi would say, wow, this is amazing. I never thought that we would. Do you think there's anybody that would be like, no, that's not what I meant for you to do. (laughs) 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 Oh, my God, they made a mistake. (laughs) Look where it's. You know, you know, the joke. Yeah. yeah. Celebrate. No, no, no. The joke about uh, you have to tell me that one. There's the joke about, um, you know, uh, Moses and the and the kashrut laws, yeah, the yeah, laws yeah. of how we how we eat, right? The kosher laws, right? So uh, don't don't eat, uh, you know, uh, don't cook a, a kid, a goat kid in its mother's milk. Oh, so you mean we should uh, not eat uh, milk and meat? No, I said, oh, so we should have two sets of dishes. Oh, so we should wait six hours. Okay, fine, just do whatever you want, right? <laughs> which, which joke were you thinking of? Uh, it's okay, this one, we'll stick with that one. We'll stick with that one. Okay. <laughs> no more ammunitions. You, you'll tell us after. <laughs> so look, as, as, as we get into the latter part of the... Our, well, hang on, but before before you do, I'm just curious. So how, how in what ways did your did your views change as you changed of reading this, this text? And let me ask kind of a connected follow-up question. Uh, how much in the religious world today, in the yeshiva world, are people learning Rambam? Okay, so... Those are two questions. We'll yeah. start with the first, and then we'll go to the second. Sounds good. good so one. the first question, yeah, it's the mission. That says that. That's the difference between a f- smart person and a fool. A smart person answers first, first, second, second, and the fool the opposite. <laughs> so I didn't want to, you know, for those audience members who know the Mishnah, they're like, ah, you fail. <clears throat> the understanding 
that I had of the Rambam changed when I saw my commitment to Torah and to Torah learning. I saw how hard it is to get to a level of understanding of Talmudic law, of Midrash and Mishnah, all of the texts that the Rambam says in the beginning of Mishnah Torah. I read all of these, and I'm integra- fully integrating them, all of this, in my book. And I saw how much commitment do I need in order just to have a basic understanding. I'm not talking about being an expert. Just a basic understanding of what's going on, like who's on first, what's on second, I don't know, on third. <laughs> and it takes an enormous amount of time and effort to keep to learn and to understand. And if this is what he's doing, how could it be that he rejected it? How could it be that he spends spent so many years and he writes in this way and he says that he's this is his goal and he didn't really believe it? So you're saying you you had these kind of academic-y thoughts that we were talking about that he he's writing but he doesn't really believe it and he's trying to hide his message and you're saying at the end of it you're, you're like no way is he devoting so many years of his life to something that he really truly is, doesn't believe. Yeah, I, I can't I, I can't see that. You can't fathom it. I can't. Um, he is a man of truth. He's not a hypocrite. And whatever he writes, you could see for the that he is striving for the search of truth. Mm. And that to me was a model because I also wanted the truth. And I think that that sort of changed my understanding of the Rambam. Now, in Yeshivot, in most Yeshivot, people don't learn more Nebuchim. You think it's a shame? Uh, no. I think that uh, um, a lot of people should don't need it. It's not for them. The Rambam writes in the introduction, I wrote this book for people with a very specific problem. They're perplexed because they study philosophy and they have a difficult time understanding the pshat, the simple meaning of verses. Mm. If you don't have this problem, don't read my book. He says it. He says it. It's not for you. I didn't write it for you. So most people in yeshiva don't have this problem. They don't study philosophy and they really don't have a problem understanding verses in the Torah. They read it all the time. So they don't have this problem. For people who do kiruv, people who work with secular Jews, people who are trying to spread the message of God and the Torah to the world, should study more Nebuchim or God of the Perplexed. Because that that gives you the tools to understand what you're dealing with. So Rabbi Gottlieb, for example, at Or Samach, does every once in a while, he used to have a series of more Nebuchim. Um, I have a, a closed small group that we study more Nebuchim on Sunday nights. Uh, if you want to get in, okay, it's uh, available. It's closed. I might. What time? Yeah, we. Well, that's the thing. You can't say it on One of the people. No, one of the people who. <laughs> it's for the perplexed. Only. One of the people that comes has no time in his life, so I've never done any shows. Yeah. Up. <laughs> but we are going through. Um, it's been. We are on chapter. We did chapter fifty-four in the first book, so we learn. You know, very slow, very methodical, Got go it. through. I'm still working on my Micha Goodman okay. adaptation of Morena Vuchim. That's going to take me a while. I never like, I don't like abridgment. I don't like people telling me what somebody says. Just yeah. give me what he said. Yeah. I remember that, you know. They it's, said, not, it's not easy to read. So you, you need help. Oh, yeah. You need help. Any of these major texts. Correct. You need help. Correct. I mean, I mean uh, I, I've tried to even sit down with a page of Gemara. You can't do it by yourself. Uh-huh. Right. Or, 
for philosophy for sure. Maybe the Egged Bus is what you need. Maybe, Maybe the Egged <laughs> Bus. And it, it, How, I think that there are a lot of, this is what I was going to ask before, I think that as, as we're getting kind of towards. But I, I do want to finish my We're not finishing. We're not finishing. No, no, no. I wanted to finish my comment on please. answering. Oh, please. Go ahead. But in Yeshivot, we learn the Rambam all the time. We don't ro- learn more Nebuchim. But we learn the, his commentary on the Mishnah. Right. We learn his code of Jewish law on a daily basis. The Rambam is a living part of yeshiva learning. And uh, some of the, the greatest excitement that I have is when I get a, you know, a Rambam that I can't understand because the Gemara seems to go like this. And everybody says that and the Rambam says no. And you try to figure out why does he say what he says. Um, so the Rambam is an amazing, amazing thinker, and um, it just—I'm honored to even have being able to understand a little bit of what he says. Have you have you read uh, Steinsaltz's? Um, I forget the name of the book, but it's it's kind of like a guide to understanding Talmud. I haven't. You haven't. I haven't. I've seen his. Uh, I have comment. to find. I have to the name of the book, but Ste- uh, Dean Steinsalt yeah, yeah, yeah. Shalom was huge, huge rabbi that passed away. I think last year, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. And he 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 wrote. This was my introduction to Talmud, um, which regretfully I don't study enough, but I try to study from time to time. And he wrote a book that's very accessible and modern to the importance of Talmud and how to approach it. So, I mean, just from my personal thing, I would recommend to those who who don't study it or want to just get a very very broad overview of what it is and why it's so central because this is something you know uh, you and i grew up reform in america and something that that i wish i had um is is just first of all uh, a familiarity with the world of talmud that i didn't even know it existed right i didn't even know it existed until i was much much older um, let alone what it is or how to approach it. And um, it's something that I think, whether you're religious or not religious or reform or conservative or orthodox or whatever kind of Jew you are, or if you're a non-Jew who wants to get an idea of how Judaism and Jewish thing is evolved, you have to have this the most basic familiarity with what it is. And it's something that that I wish I would have done sooner in life, um, and I recommend it to, to everybody. To, to at least read this book, which will give you, you know, a 300-page, 250-page, whatever, overview of what it is and the importance of it mm-hmm. to modern Judaism. I don't know the book, so again... No, just in general, though. I mean, it's just kind of my my spiel on this, my... you know, Look, I think we, this. for Jews, you know, I remember about back in Omaha, but also in when we have uh, young men coming from Reform, conservative background, they said, well, we don't believe in, in, in Judaism. There's no hell and heaven and hell. And I said, well, I don't know who we is, but in Judaism there certainly is. So that a lot of the uh, basic teachings of Judaism, people are unaware of. Yeah. And I think it's a shame. We, I think that people were robbed because it's really not fair. Because the founders of Reform Judaism and Conservative Judaism were, knew that. They were very aware of what they, they were doing. They knew it, Absolutely. but they got rid of it. A conser- I, I have they to, got, I have to agree. Conservative rabbis that I know are very aware of Jewish text. Um, but I'm, what I'm saying is, in the early, there was a decision that yes. we are going in a different direction. Right, 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 right. We are going in a diri- different direction. S- speaking of heaven and hell, I mean, you, you, the, 
You wrote a book. I'm planning on it. to go there. No, I didn't. My no, no. Your, your dishes are planning to go there. You're <laughs> my not. dishes are yeah. <laughs> now I'm. I mean, I'm praying every day to be able to, but to, uh, to join your dishes. Uh, one day, one day, one day. Uh, may you may you live to a long life. Oh, can, can we? Can, do we have a few minutes to jump into? I gotta say what I was gonna say. Though. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> not letting me get to oh, anything. No, please. <laughs> um, I, 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 we're. There are so many people who I think, and I live with somebody like this. So I'm, I'm. You can be my, you can be my therapist for a second. Okay. You can, you can be a, you can be a scholar, a, 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 a you know, thought leader, and, and, and a therapist for a moment. There, are, I'm a very, uh, we'll call it an armchair study of philosophy. Okay, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't pretend for a moment to have any real basis of of understanding of philosophy, but I'm very interested in understanding and and delving into the why behind the world and the nature of reality okay. not just why you know why do i think this way but why why you know what is this what is the truth what is the reality of the universe you know what's out there why do we act the way we act what is psychology like getting into it the real you know okay and i think that there are a lot of people who even intellectual people or, or intelligent people who for whatever reason um it it it's not that it goes over their heads, but it's like don't overanalyze, Benny. Don't get into these things too much. Yeah, make it simple, you know. Just and 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 I love my wife very much, um, but when I get too philosophical with her, she'll be like, "Alte philosoph." Like, don't be don't be so you know. Make make it simple. Like, what is ma Like, what do you want to and. I find that in in many cases, what, what's your bottom a, line in, in English? Yeah, it's like no, yeah. What's your bottom line? And, and and I think that there's there's there are a lot of people in the world that for whatever reason do not have the desire, ability, um, want, or or maybe the patience to break down reality into you know a, a, a more deep thought of 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 what is the nature of everything and why. Okay. Um, how do and it's such a beautiful study and i love it and i love getting into it and i love you know having a a you know a friendly debate about you know what you believe and what i believe and are you know who's more right or wrong it's like it, it, that's interesting to me let's let's talk about things on the merit of things and let's get let's get into it. how do you get people that aren't naturally inclined to be interested in entertaining the conversation of the nature of reality on a deeper plane so that's a very very good question uh, not that the other questions were not good but that one. No, that but this was, one is I very agree. good. This was a, you know, so you sort of, I can hit a home run. Um, I would say like this. The Greeks, they say there was a, I think it's in, or in Delphi, they had a life unexamined is not worth living. There is this movement now called, called YOLO. You only live once. And let's say, not like the Zohar that you've got, Three shots plus the first one, which is technically four. But let's say you got one shot. Don't you want to figure this out? Don't you want to get it right? And so, and the more you analyze reality, who you are, what you are, the greater appreciation you have for the complexity of human existence. And I think that that's really what's behind philosophy. You, everyone has natural curiosity. Philosophy teaches you how to think, channel that curiosity in a logical, rational way 
to exclude fantasy, delusions, other things that are sort of just confuse you. The imagination, the Rambam says, is very confusing. It likes to get you to think about things that you shouldn't because it's not concrete. But philosophy is about looking at life to have a greater and better understanding of what am I? And psychology is involved. It's all of these things. So I think that if a person who says, listen, I don't overanalyze, but in the, the very analysis that a person engages in has a much deeper and greater appreciation for everything that's around them. If you don't sit and think about and analyze, let's say, your wife, you can't appreciate her as much as if you actually did, that you understand how, why she reacts the way she is, what does she do? What she, that's, that's what philosophy brings to the table. You could over-analyze certain things. For example, you know, if there's a fire, you don't bring a philosopher. <laughs> you know, you call the fire department. If there's, if there's, there if there's somebody on an airplane that needs a medical doctor. That's right. You do not call the philosopher <laughs> to talk about immortality. But the idea is that it, it is a very, very important uh, aspect of human existence. And I think philosophy requires the beginning, which is for me was very big. You have to start humble to say, I don't know. Which is the Maharal says, that is the first step to learning Torah. Humility. You cannot it's very, learn. It's, it's very hard for people. Okay. It is very, very, very hard. But you, can't, you cannot learn unless you start out with, I don't know and I need help. And that's the basis, that's the beginning of all learning. I don't care whether you learn tennis, gymnastics, uh, cooking, whatever it is, you're saying, I don't know something. And therefore, I need to listen to you. So that's my answer. Is that a Why do you think that people um, are put off by philosophy? Those who are, what, what, what have you encountered? I think that one, people don't like to think carefully. People are sloppy thinkers. People feel. I have students in my classes at Rosh which I need to plug in the yeshiva a little bit. So the yeshiva is an, a place for young men of all backgrounds to come and develop a strong connection and find out more about God and Judaism. And so they come in a lot of... In them, English, no? Yeah, everything's in English. No, in no, just to, to, yes, to make yes, clear. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Jewish men of all backgrounds, then. We have to just say that. Um, you, you wouldn't accept a non-Jew to come study Torah? We can't. You can't? No. Why? It's a long story. Okay. Um, it's not, it has nothing to do with me. No, no, I've said that. <laughs> Obviously. Because <laughs> you're a Because guy, guy said so. That's right. That's right. No. No. Um, there are halachic issues about got studying. It, got it, got it. Yeah. But anyway, now I lost my train of thought. Or some oh, But in, the guys point. sometimes tell me, well, Rabbi, because in Shiva they call me Rabbi, I feel that this idea, I said, sorry, this is not a girl's seminary. I'm not discussing your feelings. Because I can't evaluate your feelings. I can't subject them to criticism. This is what you feel. What am I going to say? You're wrong in feeling what you're feeling? Ideas. I can criticize. I can say, look, look you have a fallacy here. This is ad hominem. This is whatever it is. There are various issues in philosophy that we point out in logic to show why this idea is a bad idea or that your argument is flawed or you made a bad comparison. Those things are debatable. 
but you can't argue against you know, someone's feelings. Somebody said, you know, I'm hurt. Okay, so what are we going to do? Are you? No, you're not really hurt. No, yes, I'm really hurt. Says, so I don't know what to do with feelings. So I think there's people, a lot of people care or want to talk about feelings. They exist on the level of feelings, which is a much lower level of existence, according to the Rambam second parak of Morinavuchim in the first book. It's a much lower level of existence because we're talking about what makes me feel good, what doesn't make me feel good. We're not talking about universal. Well, it's 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 definitely if I look at it philosophically speaking, yeah. it's, it's much more state of nature, right? Your feelings are the way that you your instinct and your intuition cause you to react to to external stimuli, whether it's what you need to rise another, above that from another person or from a situation. And it's not, you know, somebody who's acting emotionally is not is not taking time to ask why this is going on and what's the rationale behind it. They're just reacting. It's, right. it's an emotion. And emotions are good. You know, we, we do have, but they have their place, right? That's it, right? It's good to feel anxiety if the house is on fire and you need to start looking for an exit. You should stop and ask. No, I think you, I think you, whatever you're feeling, you get out of the house. Out. Yes, you should get actually, out of the house. actually, actually. You know, in emergency training situations, they teach you to get over your feelings and to be Correct. able to act according to the way you should act and not the way... So the fire was a bad example. Yes. You have no money in... Your bank account is uh, running out of cash. You're, you're spending more than you earn and you start to feel anxiety over the sustainability of your lifestyle. No. That would be a good feeling because... No, it's not. No. No, it would be a bad no. feeling, but it's good that you're feeling that feeling because Why? you may have the chance to get your life in order. That might motivate you to change your uh, behavior. It's right. different, but then you have to think rationally how to do it. That's the key. Or you would say, oh, I guess I'll take all my money that's left and go to Vegas. You know, and one, one more bet. One more bet. <laughs> one, more one, bet. More. one more bet. Um, it, 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 I wish people would, would take the time to try to get into some philosophy. Are there any philosophers, Jewish or other, that you would recommend to beginners that are starting to say, I want to dabble a little bit more into this, but you know, I, I don't want to get turned off by the first thing I read? So I think that I, we have to have a wider definition of philosophy. Sure. So I think that the philo contemporary philosophy is very, very difficult. Analytical philosophy, it's about language, it's about very, it's not user-friendly. Um, I always enjoyed uh, the writings of Plato. Uh, I think that they challenge us uh, in the Socratic method of questions back and forth to realize, but I don't know how, if, I don't know today if people have the mental capabilities to sit and read. You know, if we're just chatting and texting, these things have, you know, you have to sort of develop uh, ideas. Aristotle is probably not a user-friendly um, philosopher. For a Jewish, I would tell people to read um, Rabbi Des De uh, Dessler, Eliyahu Dessler. He's got a, the, the strife for truth. He is a very, very compelling Jewish thinker um, that discusses about what it means to be a human being. Is he a contemporary of ours? or he, is he, No, he passed away. He passed away. He was, um, uh, I don't know when he passed away, but he was in the 40s, 50s. 20th century. Um, yeah, he was in England, and then came to Israel, and he was in Bnei Bak in uh, one of the most important yeshivot, Ponovich. But he wrote uh, Strive for Truth, uh, which is in Hebrew is called Michtav uh, Meliyahu, five volumes, and he has short essays. And one of the most powerful essays that he has, it's called Kuntris or the Pamphlet of Chesed, where he defines a human being. He says, 
This world was created for us to be givers. And the world is divided between takers and givers. And you should give in this world more than you take. That's the goal. But he says there are takers that give only to take. And he goes through very, very about critical critic, critical look at a capitalist society of that it's training you to be a taker, that we define people by the more you take of the world, the better. And I use it as sort of an environmentalist perspective of he's saying shrink your carbon footprint, that is be more of a giver than a taker. It's a very, very powerful talks about relationships there, about giving and taking a relationship of what the issues could be and what the Jewish view is a very, very important uh, thinker that would be a good start. Terrific. Are there are there other Jewish thinkers that you're into, contemporary ones? And maybe kind of, are there any Jewish thinkers today that you think are on a magnitude of the Rambam? No. No, but Rabbi Gottlieb is is one of the uh, living thinkers that you you have to read. He's got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lectures on YouTube that you can watch. He's a brilliant, brilliant thinker. Also, Rabbi Breidowitz of Arsameach is a very, very um, powerful thinker. Um, Are there any thinkers that come onto the... The, the, that, that, are the, that are of the scale of the Rambam? Scholars, maybe? Uh, there's no one... Look, we in the religious world, we recognize a very important principle, which is called the decline of the generations. Every generation recognizes that they are on a lower level than the previous generation. Why? See, I don't, I don't buy that. I know. It's okay. No, no. I'm not apologizing about it. I'm just, I don't buy it. But this, we see it. That the generation that produced Rashi and the Rambam and the Ramban. I think. Let me just yeah, finish the thought. Sorry. No one comes to that level in future generations. We are dealing with epochs. Where are you starting to count from? What does that mean? Meaning. What's the height? The Where? generations are declining. Where was the height? The height was. Harsinai. Okay, so we're Moses. going like way, okay. Yeah, yeah. So we are getting farther and farther from the truth, and we are sort of declining. But even in that, if you look at it as like a, like a, like a graph, like the generations that were a couple of hundred years before the Rambam were down here, and then, and then time went and, and the progressed, says, and the Rambam came. And like no, but the way. Rambam says that the generation, he says this, the Goinim, the period before the Rambam, they were the giants, and the, the, the level of, you know, the rabbis at the time, the writers of the Rashi and the Rambam were not on a lower level. Do you think that, that, is that do, do, you, do you believe that? I see it. Do, you, don't you think that's a romanticized view? I mean, you, you were a historian or, or at least a scholar in the, you don't think that's a romanticized view to say, you know, we always say this. Um, I'll give you two examples of how we do this today constantly. Okay. The founding generation of this country, or every you know soldier, right? We say, "Oh my God, the previous generation were these like super tough, amazing soldiers, and these generation, they're everyone soft." Or, uh, you know, I had a, I had a meeting today. I'll give you that. That's one. Is we always say, oh, I, "I can't believe the pe- the the." That's the, nostalgic the, thinking. But that, that's what you're doing. I'm not, and I, not you personally. But that's, there's a culture around it, and and, and and a lot of the Jewish world does. But this. if you study enough, if you read enough of the Rambam. 
and let's say then you read the Beis Yosef. The Beis Yosef says, I am not, the, the Ramban writes, if the first generations, they were giants. Isn't that humility? We, Isn't that humility? But he also means it. Of course it's he not, means it. Okay, so if he means it, he's telling you no, that he, there is a decline that he sees. Now, if the Ramban says about himself that we are donkeys, what are we? I'm going to argue against the Ramban? I'm not saying me, personally, I, uh, but I'm, I'm, just I'm on the level that, of any of these great thinkers. I'm just saying you you don't think that there are people of intellect, people of amazing intellectual abilities in every generation so let's get uh, a little bit mystical for just a second. I feel like that's a song. It should be a song. <laughs> a little bit mystical. <laughs> you can write it. That's right. And, can, and, and before you do, I'll, I'll give you the opposite example. I had a meeting today with someone who I consider a mentor, Yeah. okay, um, career-wise, someone I consider a mentor, and someone who's coming to me to be mentored. And we were all in the same room together. And it was one of these things. Somebody came to you to get mentored? Yeah, I swear it happened. <laughs> it happened. Poor guy. Joking. And uh, no, no. But, but Dan's a great person to go to. But, but this is one of these things where I look at myself and I'm like. For a dollar. <laughs> I look at myself and I'm like, what the, what the hell do I know? Who am I going to mentor? What the hell do I know? And then I say, you know, because we look at ourselves, right? I'm 39. Um, you know, in my head, I'm still teenager Dan, you know? I'm not 39 with, you You're know. The, this picture, Dan. Well, that, that, that picture, Dan, had great hair. Yeah. Um, Stylos. Uh, you know, you don't look at yourself and see what you've become. You look at yourself as what, at least, uh, you know, what you used to be. And, I, and, and one of the things I learned from this guy, and we both said it to this new guy, it's like everybody doesn't think they're great until someone new comes to you and says, can you help me? Can you give me advice? Can you offer me? And you're like, oh, I guess I've achieved so Greatness. much. Not even greatness, but I've achieved this much, and you don't realize how much you've achieved compared to where you started. And we, we I, don't you think we're kind of doing this on a historic level, on a on a massive intellectual level to think, you know, maybe it's just because so few things survived from previous generations, and now maybe we have hundreds of people of amazing intellect, and everyone's writing books, and everyone's putting out podcasts, and everyone's, you know, giving lectures. Might it be that we're just so inundated with so many great thinkers that we can't pick it out or that we're blocking ourselves off as as in orthodox society you know so we're blocking ourselves off because no one could ever be at the level of a previous great rabbi or great thinker great philosopher i mean can it be that way no <laughs> nope <laughs> why not okay so there's really two answers there's the mystical answer which i'm going to give last and it's going to be sort of the more rationalistic. I thought approach. we're supposed to give the first answer first and the second answer second. Yes, I am. Okay. <laughs> I am. The Talmud has statements by the sages called Tanaim. This is a certain stage in rabbinic, of rabbis. And then there are the next stage was called Amoraim. And Amoras never argue against the Tana. Because they were just repeating. They, no. The Amora says, what the Tana says is what he says. We need to better understand it. There's a recognition already built in in the Gemara. That's in the Gemara. Already. That we don't argue about the Tanaim. Why? Because the Tanaim knew everything that we know. And if we know it, 
It's something that we're missing. You're just accepting that at face value? You see it. You see in the discussion. You see in the discussion, then you see the Amor explain what the Tana means. And you go, ah, so that's what we thought it was. Now the Rambam says <clears throat> that we don't argue against the Marayim. Now that might be conventional, but it's also a sign of religious respect. Yeah, no, for sure it's a sign of religious respect. But there is, when you compare, you could see the writings of great sages. When they write about, when the Beit Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karo of the 16th century, writes about the Rambam, the way that he speaks about the Rambam, you could see that it is he recognizes that he's not at the same level as the Rambam, not because of simply humility and that he's just pretending, feigning, but he really believes that the Rambam is a holy sage on this level. I'm sure I'm sure he believed it. I'm saying, can an outside scholar come and say, let's look at text one, text two, text three, and let's see who's on a higher level. Oh, so then guess who decides? The scholar decides who's the smartest. Because sure, he's sure. the smartest. Sure. So that's always, sort of, that's the question when you have a young Jew who comes to yeshiva and he has a certain halacha question. And then you say to him, okay, so he says, so what do I do in this case? I say, oh, well... Rabbi X says this and Rabbi Y says this. So he goes, oh, so I'll go like Rabbi Y. It's like, I'm sorry. On what basis did you decide between two? <laughs> the, oh, okay. So that there is something that it's about you. It's not about what the issue is. So I always don't feel that I have to decide between, let's say, the Rambam and the Ramban and the Rashi or Tosfot, or whatever it is, different commentaries of who's right. This is what they say, and the way they understand. And my responsibility is to learn and evaluate what they say vis-a-vis -vis the text, and say, here's why and how they understand it. That's the rational. And I recognize, I could see that there is a difference in understanding, because what the Rambam did, everybody is standing on their shoulders. You know? yeah. It, it, you know, but the spirit, now I'm going to give you the mystery. Okay, go ahead. So there's this idea that the neshamas, the souls, Jewish souls, right? Once Adam sinned, all of the souls of the 600,000 Jews that would come into being were put into the state of darkness. And the longer a soul stays in the state of darkness, the more impure it becomes. So the neshamas, the souls that came out a thousand years ago, are purer than souls that came out now. And so in a sense, they have a much spirit, more spiritual powers, intellectual power, whatever you call it. And that's why we look at them in, a, in the way that, so people say, okay, so then of course we're going to look up to them because they're spiritual. But there's something that you should know. The Gemara says that the greater your neshama is, your soul is, the greater your evil inclination is. The greater your soul, the greater your evil inclination. Yes, because there needs to be an equilibrium between good and evil pulling you. If your spirituality, your goodness is, you know, let's say a thousand, and your evil explanation, evil um, inclination, inclination is 30, there's no contest. You're always going to choose good. There's got to be this tension so that the evil inclination and your good inclination, your neshama, has to feel the tug. And that's why, look at what all they did with the strength of this evil inclination that they had. Are you saying it's preferable to 
always be in temptation? There is no ability. The Rambam asked this question in his um, short commentary on Pirkei Avot, on the ethics of Jewish, Jewish ethics. He asked, what's better? Somebody who has no temptation because they defeated temptation? Or somebody that is constantly tempted and is battling that temptation? He asked this question. So what do you two say? Which one is better? For humanity? No, for a person. To not have the temptation. It's better to have No, I would say it's better to have the temptation. Who is on the higher level? Who's on the higher level? The person who has the temptation. And I think that if if I'm just looking at it completely, you know, Detached from from yeah, any yeah, yeah. understanding, I would just say you have to understand evil to appreciate good. Okay. So, given that, for the person who wants to truly understand the good choice that he's making, he needs to understand the contra. He needs okay. to understand that he had to reject something to accept something that was better and good, and to and to understand that paradigm of of, of thinking, it puts you on a higher plane than somebody who just blindly always chooses to do the good because not blindly because he conquered it he con- okay he conquered it but he's he's now always doing good because it's it, how, how can i say this no i got it i think you you made it i said it, it, it's almost like i would look at the person who blindly blind again I, you, you you're saying don't say blindly but the person who, who has conquered the all uh, uh evil yeah. uh inclinations i would say that that person's weird. weird like there's something that would creep me out about that person okay like you're not acting like a human being okay that's it. Dan, what do you say? I say if if I th- that should be our goal is to conquer those inclinations because if you have those temptations and you're going to be tempted to do something with them and you're going to fail sometimes. So that means you're having a society in which people, even if well, we are human, we are human, and even but you're going to have a society. Some of us are. Uh, in which, in which, then people are possibly doing awful things, and. You don't want a society like that. But you can't have a society of angels. There's no reason for this world. Angels don't need society. But you said they conquered it. You so didn't say the they question. didn't have it. You said they conquered no, no. it. No, no, fine, whatever it is. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's different. So the Rambam writes, it depends what the desire is about. Mm. There's some things that you should that you desire that is perfectly normal to desire, like particular foods that you're not supposed to eat. There's nothing wrong with desiring it. But there's some desires that are, let's say, you know, sexual in nature that you should fully control. That is, you know, God forbid, to rape or kill. person should not have those exactly. desires right. at all. So he says it really depends on what. You have sure. to look at every desire yeah, absolutely. and put it and figure out, am I, is this a good desire? Is it okay, normal to have this desire that I want to eat shrimp? And the Torah says I shouldn't eat shrimp, so I shouldn't feel guilty about having desire. I just have to control it. Never had a desire to eat shrimp. Good. You're driving a car. Okay, it's a really, really, really awesome, fast sports car that's capable of driving at like no, ridiculous I, I, I speeds. Get the, I get the parable. I was just saying. And, and do you always drive shrimp. the speed limit? Uh, uh, of course not. Uh, but specifically, shrimp is just something I've never had a desire to touch. <laughs> It's like cockroaches. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, they literally are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See cockroaches. Uh-huh. Um, it freaks me out. They freaks but that's, me not, out. that's a marketing would be tough. See cockroaches. See cockroaches. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, I, I, I get what you're saying there. Um, yeah. Uh, so I don't think that it's a simply romanticized view. 
I think that there is a decline um, of generations. So what happens in a thousand years? Well, I hope that tomorrow we are we Mashiach. Are, are, we sub, are we supposed to be, you know, constantly improving and making the next generation better? So if, if you're looking at the state of humanity as constantly declining, doesn't that go against what our desire is for this world? Well, the, de- the, decline, the, the decline is not necessarily meaning that we are um, worse off in terms of intellectually. We see that there's more and more inventions, and, and actually we have sources in, in, in Judaism that tell us that there's going to be more and more knowledge available as you get farther and farther from the Torah because we're waiting for the Messianic era. But we see that we have less and less capabilities to do the right thing. We, come, we become much more shallow. People are not interested in you know, reading as much. All those sort of issues that are... That I remember when I entered the university, we had a, a lecture from somebody who said that the human attention span of a college student is seven and a half minutes. That's it. So <laughs> why did you schedule a 50-minute class? So, <laughs> isn't that you know they're going to fail so the <laughs> idea was the idea was well you're going to have to run your lecture on seven and a half minutes give a break that is tell a story move away walk do something on the board and then do another seven and a half minutes because people can't and i don't know if that's stayed today that people can stay focused for seven and a half well, minutes. well we we have a two hour plus podcast yeah and we enjoy listening to other podcasts that are similar lengths. So, I think oh, that, Hashem. so there's hope. You th- said. Th- there is hope. You know, it's funny. Um, and we'll, we'll kind of wrap up with this. It's been fascinating. It's been really fascinating. I don't know about you. I'd love to do follow up episodes on a whole bunch of the things that we kind of touched on, um, you know, afterlife, all these things, you know, comparative. We, we could do a lot of kind of follow ups sure. if you're up to it. But, um, it, you know, for those listeners, um, as a thought experiment, you know, compare, check out last week's episode with Dan Liebenson, check out this episode. And he said, you know, kind of an opposite thing of what you just kind of finished on. And that's why should we put earlier thinkers above recent ones, earlier text above new ones? Why, you know, and, and he boldly challenged that. And there's a whole group within the Jewish world. It's not do that. new. It's not new. It's not new. Um, and, and I think it's fascinating. But it's not coming from humility. Um, it's not coming from humility. You could, you we could, know better. You, it's not a we know better. Um, you know, I'll play devil's advocate here. Yeah, or whatever the Jewish equivalent of devil's advocate is. There is a devil in Judaism. <laughs> There's a devil in Judaism. Um, <laughs> and I would say it, it, it's coming from a, maybe not a personal humility for sure, but it's definitely coming from a we're all human humility. We're all humans. There, no one's better than I, and I'm not better than anyone. And so, why can't my text or my commentary or my analysis be just as valid not more valid but just as valid as previous ones so i would say like this i would say it's as valid as long as you don't go against the tenets of judaism which is in jewish law we have certain things that we are required to believe as jews it's not only orthopraxy no, sure, and so la- if last week's guest will will very much disagree with it, but I think this is what, what? makes it so interesting. So once he to- disagrees, <laughs> then he's out. That's you remember what mm-hmm. makes the Jewish people is the Torah. That's what the Torah says. The, God made the Jewish people by giving them the Torah. That is the constitution. Once you reject the constitution, you're now you're out. You can play with whatever you want. You can call you know you can call this cilantro. You can call this whatever you want. 
but you're sort of essentially out. And that is, I think, the, the difficulty. Um, I think that there are Jewish books written all the time, um, written by very, very smart people, and they should be taken seriously, being read, as long as they follow the handed-down Masora going from Harsinai. If you contradict the Masora, I can't, you are out of the conversation. And there were, throughout Jewish history, there were people who would write books that were against or outside of the Masora. And they're out. They're out. So we could do a whole other episode just on this because there's like, there are layers, there's so many layers to this. It's, it's you know, they're out of the, they're out of the tradition, but, here we are. They're still Jews. We're still living together in a country, and we have to get along, and we have to. Well, know. I don't know about it. we have to get along. We don't have to get along. Well, we, do, we have to be civil. We, could just, we have to not. It. We have to be not that's violent it. towards one another. We have to decide sure. who takes out the trash. We have to decide who deals with our problems collectively. We have to decide how we divide up resources. We have to and, decide who sits in the Knesset. Well, that's the thing, and we we live in this. We live in this very interesting and unique experiment that is uh, that is called. Uh, the state of Israel and the land of Israel, and, uh, and and the broader Jewish people, and the broader Jewish people, um, and and you know there are religious issues, and there are cultural issues, and there are peoplehood issues, and there's all kinds of issues, and and for whatever reason, we're destined to be here with one another. Uh, and for me, the most important thing really is that civility. It's it's it's, and I think that we do that. I think that the majority of people do that. I think that there are that we're living in a time where this this device, the fact that we all have this computer with the entire knowledge, you know, base of every everything on it, and Facebook and, and mass media and social media, it oftentimes can exaggerate uh, the impact or the otzma, uh, the volume of uh, the, the strength of the uh, right, the strength of the of, extremists of or the, the strength, extremists, the right. strength of of people that are not civil. But I think that by and large, um, we are able to do it and we're able to live together and I think that's a great message uh, and I'll and I'll wrap up on that but I, I would just say that um, I think it's to the merit of people like you guy that uh, that that the knowledge of Jewish philosophers will get passed down uh, because you make it more appealing for others and you make it more appealing for people uh, like Dan and myself to be able to want to learn more and want to get into it uh and um and and I and I hope that through that there will be people that will be inspired to um to want to ask deeper questions and want to know why and want to know you know more about things than than just what our feelings and our gut tell us. Thank you very much. I appreciate I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, I think that without getting into sort of politics um, I think that the basis of the Torah is derech eretz, is civility, is respect, and uh, I think that we can strongly disagree on lots of things. But that, that one doesn't we make should, we should definitely agree on. Yeah, no, but I, I I think that there's a way to disagree. Yes, and just because someone is misguided or has the wrong information or had never gotten to it. It doesn't make the person a bad person. It's just he's not. He just doesn't know. And I think that uh, this country is going through uh, a very, very serious challenge. Um, and unfortunately, 
Um, there's lots of scapegoating. There's lots of all sorts of issues. When somebody who asked me about Corona, I said, yes, yes, I know. Haredi bit a bat in China. <laughs> you know, I know. <laughs> so there's a lots of these sort of things. But I, I think that if we discuss ideas as opposed to people, and I think that things are going to get a lot better. Well, I think it's when I first moved here, and it was now eighteen years ago. One of the things that I was that I would tell people um, was that we could all sit down. At, you know, we would have these intense political disagreements, and at the end of the day, we would have them over over you know over a beer. And, and at the end of the day, you know, atahi, like you you know, we're all brothers. And somehow along the way, I think that that's been lost a little bit. And I think that um, I think we'll, you know. Our survival will depend on us getting back there. Amen. And one of the missions of our show, to, to bring back some uh, juants to the world. Um, so with that, Dr. Rabbi, not Rabbi, <laughs> Guy Madelon, uh, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. We'd, thank you for having we'll me. We'll be glad to do some follow-ups. God willing. And uh, if people want to follow you or reach out to you. Yep, they could uh, email me or Facebook me, uh, Gene Madelon at... Uh, ohr.edu awesome and we'll put that up on the show notes we'll see y'all next time bye bye take care Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts for more information and show notes about this and previous episodes visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.